Welcome back. Brothers and sisters, comrades, former members of the Black Panther Party, we welcome Sister Charlotte O'Neill, wife and comrade of Brother Captain Pete O'Neill of the Kansas City branch of the Black Panther Party. The O'Neills left the U.S. after the fall of the party and settled in the East African nation of Tanzania, where they established a village where Africans from both countries lived in harmonious purpose. The O'Neills welcomed the brave warrior Geronimo G. Jaga Pratt to their community, where the former Black Panther elder lived, married, and breathed his last breath under an African sun. As we all age into our elder days, it's important to remember that the Black Panther Party was mostly a teenage organization of young men and women. Older members were branch captains and other officials, such as deputy ministers of state chapters. But it was fundamentally a youth group. Much of this gets lost in the mists of distant history. And even though much time has passed and lives have taken different paths, I don't know of one man or woman who regrets his or her former membership in the party. Not one. Most people remember those days as a high point in their lives when they served their people, body and soul. They remember the camaraderie between brothers and sisters. And they remember a fierce love for the people. So we all, once again, welcome Sister Charlotte O'Neill, all power to the people, with love, not fear. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. Thank you. Thank you all. And it was hot. It was so hot. It was, it was like a 95, 100 degrees in the shade. The wind never blew. And they say that New Orleans has humidity down there, which kind of cools us off. That's bullshit. It was un, it was death heat. Inside the convention center, it was so stifling hot, people tried to stay outside. Hot as hell, 100-something degrees. It's hot. It was very, very hot at that time. It was 97, 98 degrees. It was hot. And the heat radiating off of the highway yeah. at night was intensely hot. It's hot as hell. That was the worst summer. I mean, that, that was, there was some, I mean, that, that heat was ridiculous. Man, it was hot as heck in here. It was beyond Africa heat. If Africa heat was anything like that, like I said before, and I'll say it again, they keep saying, go back to Africa, hell no. The U.S. has had a historically hot summer. Now, if you've got good air conditioning, that heat may not pose much of a threat. But for those who can't ignore it, who can't afford it, it can be dangerous. Sophia Schmidt of member station WHYY reports on efforts to get AC units into the hands of people who need them. There are barely any trees to shade Felicia Ashley's block in northwest Philadelphia. Inside her row home, her young nieces and nephew watch TV. It's sweltering because the AC unit near the kitchen doesn't work. My landlord is actually a friend of mine's daughter. And she said that AC been here since when she was little. That AC older than me. Ashley has survived much of the summer with just a fan on her first floor, though she does have one AC unit upstairs. 
I have high blood pressure and diabetes. And I also have a pregnant daughter and my husband goes to dialysis. <laughs> so the air is really, really needed. Health conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure and pregnancy can make you more vulnerable to heat exhaustion or heat stroke. And heat can be deadly. So far this summer, at least seven people have died in Philadelphia from heat-related causes. According to the EPA, heat is the lead cause of weather-related deaths in the U.S. Ashley looked into buying a new air conditioner herself, but it was expensive. Once I pay my rent, my bills is over. <laughs> the U.S. Census Bureau estimates that more than 400,000 occupied housing units in Pennsylvania do not have air conditioning. Nationally, that number is close to 11 million. For those who can't afford air conditioning, there is assistance, but it's limited. In a Facebook group for moms, Ashley learned about a tiny mutual aid group based in Philly called Funds Y'all. They've been raising money and collecting used air conditioners to give to neighbors in need. A volunteer delivered a window unit to Ashley's house and helped install it. After a bit of wrangling, it shuddered to life. There we go. There are a variety of small-scale efforts to address the need for air conditioners. Nonprofits and churches around the country have given out fans and air conditioners. And there are several federal programs states can use to provide AC units. The main one, according to the federal government, is called the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, or LIHEAP. It can help families get air conditioners or pay their summer cooling bills, but how it's used varies state to state. Pennsylvania started a pilot program with that funding this summer to provide or repair air conditioners for households that already got LIHEAP or weatherization help in the past year. The state says it's provided or fixed over 350 cooling units so far. But experts say, especially with climate change, there aren't enough resources for help with cooling. The numbers are way too big for GoFundMe. It's way too big for charity. Mark Wolf heads the National Energy Assistance Directors Association. His group represents the state officials that distribute funds from LIHEAP. Wolf says the program does not have enough money, and states spend most of it helping pay heating bills in the winter. The reason states do that, of course, is that the winter heating season comes first. And that cooling up to recently was viewed, I think, in many places as a luxury. The Inflation Reduction Act President Biden signed last week includes billions for rebates to help lower and middle income households buy energy efficient appliances, including heat pumps, which act as both heaters and air conditioners. And the Biden administration is encouraging states to use LIHEAP funds for cooling. But fewer than half of states told the federal government they use it to provide air conditioners. The federal program had an unprecedented level of funding this year, thanks to COVID relief and the infrastructure law. But Wolf says that's not likely to last. As we look towards next year, we're in the same boat we were before. We don't have enough funds to provide both heating and cooling. Meanwhile, in Philadelphia, dozens of residents have applied for air conditioners from the mutual aid group. And organizers are scrambling to raise enough funds. They've stopped taking new applications for now and say it could take months to cross everyone off their list. For NPR News, I'm Sophia Schmidt in Philadelphia. As you look to my left, I have a San Antonio air conditioning fund. Of course. Uh, I'm going to be walking around with this the whole the night, walking around. I look in here right now, it's five ones, five dollars in here. How much are you trying to raise? Uh, $2,700 to get the air conditioning fixed. $2,700? $2,700. I'm in for a dollar. You know, so uh, thank you, Maddie. So, San Antonio, I'm burying it for you tonight. 
But I'm gonna be walking around with this air conditioning fun all right here in Miami. To keep our cool this summer, most of us are probably choosing to spend more time in air-conditioned spaces, but many people in prisons don't have that option. The U.S. Department of Justice is investigating prisons in some southern states trying to get to the root of persistent violence, and as Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting explains, they might take a look at the heat. In a cell phone video shared by a Georgia prison rights activist, a group of mostly shirtless men are bent over a big black cart. I just came in here. It ain't been number 30 seconds. As the camera pulls back, you see it's an ice cooler parked on a prison block. It's been one minute. Dana Smallwood-Linton says, like these men, this is how her son is meant to stay cool in his prison. It's 90 degrees inside. How long do you think that ice is lasting? Only a quarter of Georgia's prisons are fully air-conditioned. The others are only partially cooled, maybe in a single dormitory. Linton's son is at Phillips State Prison, one of two in the Georgia system with no air conditioning at all. And while Linton says that's tough enough for her 22-year-old son, his roommate is 80. You know, he, he doesn't, he very rarely leaves his room because it's so, it's so exhausting for him to even walk from his room to the shower. The direct threat to physical health from heat is well documented, but prison heat presents another danger too, homicides. Phillips State Prison saw its first deaths this year in July, typically the hottest month of the year in Georgia. Two of those three July deaths were ruled homicides. That pattern of homicides peaking on the hottest days repeats itself across the Georgia prison system at least as far back as 2015. Anita Mukherjee is an assistant professor in the business school at the University of Wisconsin. She says that Georgia pattern mirrors what she found in a Mississippi study. Yeah, so the question that we started out with is what is the effect effect of, let's say, a hot day versus a moderate temperature day on acts of violence in prison. Mukherjee and her co-researcher Nicholas Sanders of Cornell University used some sophisticated math to isolate heat from some 52 other variables in eight years of data from the Mississippi Department of Corrections. What generates a response in violence is days averaging 80 degrees or more. On a day like that, Mukherjee says it could easily top 100 degrees inside a prison when there's no air conditioning or places to cool down. That problem is concentrated at prisons in 13 states in the South and Southwest. Mukherjee and Sanders say when a day in prison is that hot, expect about 20% more acts of extreme violence than on a temperate day. Annually, that's about 4,000 violent acts in prisons across the country. Correction means correct deviant behavior. It doesn't mean lock and feed, torture and torment. During the long career of Mississippi Department of Corrections Commissioner Burling Kane, federal courts have found that even just the threat of illness and violence from heat is a civil rights violation. And so then pretty soon it violates the Eighth Amendment, you could say. The Eighth Amendment to the Constitution protects against cruel and unusual punishment. The Federal Department of Justice has been looking for Eighth Amendment violations in southern prisons, including those run by Kane, for years. Yeah, they've already said it about it being hot, hot, hot. We know it's hot. And Kane says that's a problem for correctional officers, too. Well, you know, some people can't stand that heat anyway. They don't want to work in it. Prisons across the South struggle to keep even a minimally safe number of correctional officers. Georgia's staffing is down by nearly 40 percent. 100-degree workplaces don't help. So Kane is installing air conditioning in Mississippi's infamous Parchman Prison. But the main thing is the violence is down. So that means it's a safer place to work, so that's good. His aim is to do the same for the entire Mississippi prison system. 
For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon, Georgia. If Africa he was anything like that, like I said before, and I'll say it again, they keep saying go back to Africa, hell no. Well, record-breaking drought continues to scorch wide swaths of sub-Saharan Africa, from Somalia in the east to Niger in the west. Humanitarian groups say tens of millions of people are going hungry and conditions are being made worse by the ripple effects of Russia's war on Ukraine. Correspondent Fred DeSam Lazaro has our report from one of the worst affected countries, South Sudan, where nearly two-thirds of the population face acute hunger. By many measures, South Sudan is one of the worst places on earth to be a child. Vivid reminders of this Greek workers who actually measure the fragile arms at this nutrition center in the capital, Juba. Almost every infant checks in in the red zone, severely malnourished. On the day we visited, Christine Dier brought in her two-year-old daughter, Esther, a two-year-old who weighs 11 pounds, she says. That's less than half the normal weight range for her age. There was no food for us in the house. So this child got anemic, and they told me that she was malnourished. Jacqueline Marco was here with her eight-month-old, Rose Jima. I'm breastfeeding, but there's not enough milk. Sometimes the whole week there's no food. We have to go to the neighbors and ask for food. Does she know how much Rose Jima weighs? Two, two kilos. So that's four and a half pounds for an eight-month-old child. It's very likely she weighed more than that as a newborn. Malnutrition, especially at such a young age, especially under two years of age, has significant cognitive challenges, uh, neurological development, cognitive development, and all is, is affected. Dr. Mesfin Loha is the country director for World Vision, a large Christian charity that contracts with the United Nations to deliver services here. So the future of South Sudan in so many ways is quite literally shriveling away. Without urgent support to turn uh, the, the tide of this uh, devastation, uh, it is going to be a big problem. The children's struggle could be a metaphor for their young country. Born a decade ago after a long separatist war, South Sudan has been battered by unrelenting civil conflict. More than two million of its citizens remain refugees in neighboring countries, and a similar number have been driven into crowded camps, overwhelming those trying to provide assistance. The supply of basic foodstuffs has dwindled in warehouses like these as the UN's World Food Program has run out of money to restock them. And the WFP has had to reprioritize, as one official put it, taking away food from the hungry to feed the starving. There's nothing as difficult as trying to convince someone who is hungry that there's someone who is hungrier, uh, that you need to prioritize someone else. Sibona Kaliso Impala is with World Vision's facilities in the northern town of Malakal, a region where the small farmers have seen their livelihoods devastated by erratic weather in recent months. All around the soggy camp, the land remains waterlogged, and many people fear there's a lot more rain on the way. We're seeing the effects of climate, climate change um, right at the front because uh, we do have uh, uh, cyclic drought and then uh, more recently we've been seeing uh, worsening flooding. Both effects really affect the abilities of the communities to cope. Um, they cannot cultivate. So instead of scaling up, you're actually scaling down? We're scaling down. Across the country, internal refugees like Nyaluak Gai, who heads a household of seven children, have been forced to live with less. 
much less. When we visited early this August, she showed us her monthly rations. Sorghum, already half gone. Cooking oil, fast burning out. And some beans, all gone. And a lot of August still to go. This is sufficient for one meal a day for 10 days. So what do you do for the rest of the time? Whenever this runs out, we go to the bush to look for wild fruits or bring in firewood for sale. And we can use that little money we get from selling firewood to buy other food in the market. Rounding up the perfect storm with conflict and climate change, the war in Ukraine. It sent prices soaring for fertilizer, fuel and food, hitting big buyers like the World Food Program and small ones like Jane Kiden, beaten the odds and eked out a life outside of camps. Now in the market, things are very expensive, and I cannot afford to buy food for my children. She belongs to a group that tends a community garden, one way to cope with the scarcity. A single mother of eight, Jane Kiden also does domestic work around town when she can find it. We visited early the next morning as she prepared a pot of porridge made from fermented sorghum. It's rich in carbohydrates and protein, but there's just one cup per child to last the whole day, or if she doesn't find work, until the next morning. Another lost dream, Jane was forced to pull out three of her six school-aged children. I wanted all my children to go to school. I tell them that I can't send them all because of the money. Of course, they keep quiet, but deep down, I know they are not happy. Nine-year-old Adia is one of the lucky siblings. She attends a nearby school with no frills, no school lunch, and no guarantee her mother can continue to pay the tuition of about $100 paid over the school year. It's the same uncertainty at the nutrition centers. The World Food Program says it expects supplies of this protein-rich paste intended for severely malnourished children to run out by the end of August. It's all the more painful given how effective this simple nutrition therapy can be. Ten-month-old Ivan had been on it for three weeks and was brought in by his mother, Evelyn Jury, for a follow-up check. A relief, a green light for a moment of simple happiness that his mother feels may be all too fleeting as she awaits word on whether her baby's care package may be the last one in a while. It's why my child is a little bit better than before, but if it's gone, he goes back to where he was. In July, the U.S. government added $117 million in emergency aid for South Sudan. Even with that, the U.N. says it's raised barely a third of what's needed here in a world beset by humanitarian crises and blindsided by the one in Ukraine. For the PBS NewsHour, this is Fred Sam Lazaro in Juba, South Sudan. And Fred's reporting is a partnership with the Undertold Stories Project at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. One of the things that's very important to understand about South Africa is that it is, like so many other African countries, an artificial entity created by the Brits. Now to South Africa. And that is the sound of people in Pretoria railing against the cost of living crisis in the country. Marches are being held there and unions are calling for a government cap on fuel and a drop in interest rates.
They're also asking people not to go to work in protest. Inflation is the highest it's been for 13 years. Our reporter Lebo de Secco spoke to us from Pretoria. Here in Pretoria, the uh, union that organised this strike has said that the numbers are around 5,000. It's certainly not the shutdown here that they had hoped for, and local media reporting pretty much the same picture around the country. Now, the unions have said uh, they've blamed various things, such as transport, uh, as being an issue. But you have to wonder if people can really afford to take the day's hit in pay uh, when the cost of living is so high. So remind us exactly what is happening with the cost of living. Which particular areas are, are, are people really struggling with? Well, we've been speaking to people today who have just been telling us how their salaries don't even get them through the month. These are people that don't even make $200 a month, having to resort to loan sharks because they just can't make ends meet. They're spending around half their salary on transport alone. That's before you talk about uh, things like food, uh, school fees and other necessities. Uh, wage, um, fuel, like in a lot of countries, is a real issue. Inflation is running at its highest in more than a decade. Transport, all of these things are really putting pressure on people's pockets. So people are spending half their salary, some people, on transport. That is extraordinary. Uh, and what is the government's response to this? So what, uh, what have they said that they're going to do? Well, the government hasn't uh, spoken specifically about this strike other than to remind people that they won't get paid if they go out on strike today. Uh, the president, Cyril Ramaphosa, did tweet about the fall in the number of unemployed. Um, those numbers came out yesterday, a drop of 0.6%. But we're still looking at around a third of South Africans that don't have a job. That is before you even look at the people that have given up looking for work. Lebo Diseco speaking to me from Pretoria. When classes begin this week at UNC Charlotte, 49 freshmen arrived with a head start. WFAE's Andos Helms reports on a growing acknowledgement that equal opportunity requires more than just admitting diverse students. Back in 1986, UNCC launched its University Transition Opportunities Program, known as UTOP, for black freshmen. Regina Brown, director of the Office of Academic Diversity and Inclusion, says black students are still part of the six-week introductory program. But we also recognize that we have a lot more Latinx students. We also have more low-income students of all races, um, as well as we have students that um, are coming from rural communities, that their high schools simply may have not had some of the opportunities like AP or IB curriculum. All of these students have the ability to succeed, Brown says but they may lack confidence, knowledge, or support systems. Transition programs like UTOP are part of a growing movement in K-12 and higher education to provide support that levels the playing field regardless of family background. This year's 49 UTOP students moved into residence halls on July 1st. Learning about dorm life and dining options is one part of helping them feel ready to join a university that has more than 30,000 students. They also take college courses like Burt Ray's writing class. Near the end of the program, UTOP students took turns voicing what they'd learned about technical skills. I learned how to properly cite sources at the end of like essays and stuff like that. That was always something I kind of struggled with when writing um, academic essays and stuff. The value of feedback. 
I have improved so much by getting constructive criticism by everybody. And the importance of rewriting. Like, not all writing starts off good. It's a process. You got the crappy first drafts, which is really great, which kind of boosts the confidence and stuff, because I always feel a lot of pressure to write good the first time around, but I don't have to anymore. Ray told the class why these lessons are crucial to college success. Whether it's answering questions on tests, whether it's speaking your mind in class like this, whether it's recording research and trying to write about it, or presenting at a conference like you might with a research poster or a talk, uh, these are the things that are going to help you. It's why we're taking this class. They ended their summer stretch with seven credit hours. Taking college courses compressed into six weeks requires hard work which is why there's a two-hour study hall required five days a week. As a student at Charlotte's Ardry Cal High, Harshal Faldu says he tended to procrastinate. So this study hall really helps me manage my time wisely. Like seven and nine, we're all in one big room, just quiet and just working together, getting our work done. And if we need help, there's always like a mentor to help you out. Like, oh, uh, how do you do this assignment? Like, how do you just basically, how do you do this task? Brown, the diversity director, says the presence of peer mentors embeds a crucial lesson about college survival. We make sure that we um, create the culture that working with a tutor or someone who's more knowledgeable in a subject is not from a deficit standpoint, but really it's just to make sure that you have a support network whenever you're learning a new subject. Of course, the six weeks of summer preparation were not all about academics. There were field trips, pancake breakfasts, water balloon battles, and unstructured time in the dorm to make friends. We already have plans, like starting fall semester, we're going to start hanging out uh, on the weekends, like study halls. Grace Lumbu, who graduated from UNCC this month, says that makes a big difference. She did UTOP in 2019. The credits she earned helped her graduate early, she says, but the big thing was feeling at home from the start. I was able to get acclimated with the campus and not feel like one of the new kids on campus, knowing where everything was practically, knowing my schedule, just it just felt like home and I was comfortable and um, having a sense of community that I still have to today and even after I graduate is just something that I'm really grateful for. This summer, Bank of America gave the university $2.5 million to expand UTOP. In coming years, there will be up to 190 students each summer. This year, the money went toward paying all expenses for the six-week session. In the past, there's been financial aid, but students had to pay for tuition, room, and board. This is the first year that everyone has not had to worry about, okay, how do I pay for the housing? You know, where, you know, how far is my money going to go in terms of a meal plan for the summer? After a one-week break, the UTOP crew returned to campus this week to join about 4,200 other freshmen. They'll continue to get advice, support, and guidance from university staff and fellow UTOP alumni. If the program succeeds, they'll have the knowledge and support to weather the challenges of college. For WFAE News, I'm Ann Doss-Helms. Hitler had the supreme fascist state. And what was he worried about in Europe and in Germany? He was worried about white genetic annihilation. Some pieces of art in New York's museums will be getting updated signage soon. Earlier this month, Governor Kathy Hochul signed a law that requires museums to disclose if a work of art was stolen by the Nazis. The law is part of a larger effort from the state to honor the memory of Holocaust survivors. 
Andrea Bayer is the Deputy Director for Collections and Administration at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City and joins us now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Aisha. Just how common is it for museums to have art that was stolen by Nazis in their collections? Well, the theft of art was rampant under the Nazis. And some of the, uh, at the end of the war, some of the troves of art that were found are staggering in quantity. A great deal of that was restituted to the original families when possible. But in recent decades, there's been a lot of research to see whether there is still art out there in the world that has not been returned to the original owners. How do you figure that out? First of all, men and women, some of them met employees, curators, at the end of the war, made inventories of the works that they found that had been stolen by the Nazis. So all over Europe, people were doing this. The Nazis themselves kept very serious inventories, and they can match the pieces to those inventories. Subsequently, large databases have been built up that also help track works of art that were suspected of being stolen or that we know were stolen. And we are able to draw on that knowledge as we do our research. And so the law in New York now states that museums will need to prominently place a placard or other signage next to the stolen works. How does the Met plan to integrate that rule into, you know, their collections? Um, So we already have on our website fully described 53 works of art that we know were restituted at the end of the war and then subsequently sold or given to us. So it's not a huge number, right? It's a, it's a discrete amount of works. They fall into several categories, European paintings, medieval art, European sculpture and decorative arts. And in all of those areas, we are now going to sit down with the curators and define how we can best carry out this new law. What should we be saying? Where should the information go exactly? What kind of information is most valuable? How can we present it in such a way that they read it and understand what are the issues involved? Uh, Because these are complex issues. Obviously, this law is focused on World War II and Nazis, but there has been a lot of talk in recent years about um, non-European pieces of art that have been taken from countries in Africa or, or, or other places. Um, is there any thought that's not in this, this law, but just for the Met, like how they're thinking about that sort of art? Yes. Um, we have, over the last years, uh, restituted a number of objects to various different countries, both in Europe and in Asia and elsewhere. Um, and in fact, just on August 15th, we restituted two objects to Nepal. It's a similar kind of research. When it is demonstrated to us that an object has been stolen, illegally exported based on our laws and the laws of the country in which it was found, we are very open to the return of those works of art. And, and so, I mean, going back to, to the law uh, at hand, um, what do you hope that people will take away when they visit the, the Met and other museums and see this information next to these pieces of art? I think it will make them uh, think about history a lot. 
and how these objects contain within themselves stories that go way beyond just us to different moments in time, to people's suffering, to people's traumas, and how we hope that when they have come to the Metropolitan Museum, that they've found a good home. Andrea Bayer, Deputy Director of Collections and Administration at the Met. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me and for a wonderful conversation. This is their Emmett Till moment. The lynching of 14-year-old Emmett Till in 1955, one of the most notorious examples of racial violence in American history. And the torture and murder of that young man in Mississippi became a galvanizing incident in, in the 20th century civil rights movement. Nearly 70 years since the murder, there has been no shortage of incidents of bias, racism, and bigotry. Now some activists say they're working on a way to warn communities about those incidents as they happen. WJZ is live tonight. Christina Mendez joins us from Anne Arundel County. And Christina, that plan is modeled on the Amber Alert warning system. Exactly. So while the Amber Alert notifies the community of a child abduction, the Emmett Till Alert will send a message to African-American leaders here in Maryland warning of any racially motivated incidents or hate crimes. This is how it shapes up. People can send in their information. Once it's vetted and deemed credible, the caucus of African-American leaders will then push out that information to its users and then notify the appropriate authorities if they're not already involved. The murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in August 1955 became a catalyst for a new civil rights movement. Now nearly 67 years later, marking the day of his death, the young life taken is turning tragedy into action. For the first time, is to create what's called the Emmett Till Alert. It will work the same way as the Emma. Carl Snowden with the Caucus of African American Leaders says the system will alert 167 black elected officials statewide, national civil rights organizations, clergy, and other key people anytime there's a credible hate crime or threat in Maryland. When the FBI director says that he has said often that the greatest domestic terrorist threat is white supremacist. We should take that very, very seriously. Snowden says there's three alert levels, low, medium, and high. The top threat meaning a great likelihood of violence or death. The announcement comes on the heels of incidents at Kingdom Celebration Center in Anne Arundel County, including racist graffiti found on the church doors. The Emmett Till alert system is a step in the right direction for our community to govern itself and to heal itself. With the first alert sent out Monday, notifying users the system is up and running, African-American leaders hope Maryland's model will be an inspiration. This is a model system for all of America. So to start, this system will only notify those key leaders that I mentioned in this story. As for how this system works, we're told that it's all privately funded through donations and will cost about six grand a year to run. I'm reporting live from Anne Arundel County tonight. I'm Christina Mendez for WJZ. Let me say something that gets to the very crux of the matter, and this may be offensive for some to hear, who are not on the side that we're on. White people, we have been a problem for 400 years. Say that again. Let me say it one more time for those of you who didn't hear me. White people, we have been the problem for 400 years. For months, public appearances of white supremacists have dominated headlines throughout New England. But community activists and local officials across the region have been activated and are publicly rejecting the messages of hate. 
GBH News' Philip Martin has been tracking those efforts and has this story. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. In early August, at the end of a 90-degree day, two dozen residents crowded into Franklin, New Hampshire's City Hall to demand that city officials take a more aggressive stance against growing white supremacist activity. Most showed up specifically to support local businesswoman Miriam Kovacs, who has been in the crosshairs on social media of NSC 131, a neo-Nazi group. And it was noted that people should negatively review my account on Google to try to damage my business. Kovacs, who is of Jewish and Asian descent, runs a catering company called The Broken Spoon. And in her brightly colored front window, a sign reads, You are loved superimposed over the American flag. One negative reviewer of her business identified himself as Rudolf Hess, a reference to Hitler's loyal deputy. Other negative one-star reviews followed. They left a lot of Holocaust references, some were as bold as to leave a picture of the train tracks to Auschwitz. Though the threats were online, Franklin police officer Mark Farrell, a close friend of Kovacs, said he worries about her in this divisive political atmosphere. With Miriam taking you know, a stand and, and being vocal and being out there about it, it's pretty much just putting big targets on, on the windows to say, here I am, this is, this is the place you hate. In July, NSC-131 protested outside a shop in nearby Kettery, Maine, holding signs reading, Keep New England White. That was the last straw for Dresden Lewis, who runs a bakery outside of Portsmouth called Nomunism. I was reading in the local paper that there had been an NSC demonstration in front of the Kittery Trading Post in Kittery, Maine. And I thought to myself, well, that sucks. So Lewis called for a counter-protest in Kittery. And I suggested to my followers and the people that support my business, you know, next weekend, same time, same place, you want to meet up and reclaim this space for kindness and good and show that, no, we're not going to keep New England white. New England was never white, and this doesn't work for me, and it shouldn't work for you. Dozens of mainly white families showed up in Kittery to join her protest against right-wing extremists. People across the region have been similarly standing up against hate. My name is Patrick Burr, out of drag, and Patty Bourret in drag. Burr is often the target of right-wing protests when performing in drag story hours for kids, as he was recently in Jamaica Plain when neo-Nazis showed up. But an even greater number of supporters arrived, making Burr feel safe. I felt so much gratitude and, and respect for the people in NJP who came out to counter-protest the NSC group. Burr and other LGBTQ activists say they're working with anti-fascists as a counterweight to neo-Nazis. I know I can message so-and-so and mail phone tree so that we can have our own community be present because that's what I feel like I need to be safe. So I open up the mic. Back at Franklin, nearly a dozen people lined up at a mic at the city council meeting to give their takes on growing extremism. On the way here, I counted two Confederate flags. What we do now counts not only for us here in this room, but also the students. Not taking action is the same as supporting that kind of hate. At the end of the meeting, officials agreed to pass a resolution, like one approved by the city of Dover, New Hampshire, condemning white nationalism. Miriam Kovacs said the council's actions a good start, but there is a lot more to be done. She still worries that far too many people in her community are not taking the threat posed by hate groups seriously enough. The specter of the January 6th right-wing insurrection in the Capitol still hovers in her mind.
because we've seen what can happen. You know, not wanting it to happen isn't enough to keep it from happening, but ignoring it isn't going to make it better. In Franklin and other communities, some residents appear to have gotten that message. Philip Martin, GBH Boston's local NPR. The January 6th committee hearings painted an elaborate and often damning portrait of former President Donald Trump's role in the insurrection. But race is also playing a central, if sometimes unspoken, role. NPR's Sandia Dirks has more. There's this striking moment back at the very beginning of the hearings in Senator Benny Thompson's opening statement. I'm from a part of the country where people justify the actions of slavery, the Ku Klux Klan, and lynching. I'm reminded of that dark history as I hear voices today try and justify the actions of the insurrectionists on January 6, 2021. Thompson draws a direct line from the lost cause to the big lie. Hakeem Jefferson, a political scientist at Stanford, says Thompson's very presence as an elder black Southern man at the helm of the hearings holds meaning. To see someone who looks like Benny Thompson wield this amount of institutional power against a person like Donald Trump, who is awash in the markings of whiteness and privilege and all that it affords. Whiteness. Jefferson says, is at the center of the events this hearing is interrogating. January the 6th was a racial backlash. More precisely, he says, it's part of an ongoing white backlash against the very perception of racial progress. Some white people are really concerned about a loss of power and status in American society. At the heart of January 6th, Jefferson says, is a story about power, white power. It's not about power that's maintained by burning crosses. It's about power that's maintained about telling some stories and not some others in schools. It's about the power to elect people who you think will do your bidding. Over on Fox News, hosts like Tucker Carlson, who has peddled almost every conspiracy and lie about January 6th, have consistently said that race or racism has nothing to do with it. Here he is in June, after falsely implying that the election could very well have been stolen. A lot of the protesters on January 6th were very upset about that. And they should have been. All of us should be. But the January 6th committee ignored all of that completely. Instead, on the basis of zero evidence, no evidence whatsoever, they blamed the entire riot on white supremacy. Of course, the January 6th committee hasn't really done that. The hearings haven't mentioned race much. And it is a central part of their case that rioters showed up precisely because they believed Trump's lie about a stolen election. But who believed that lie and why they believed it has everything to do with race, says Robert Pape, director of the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats. What we're really observing are the consequences of the fear of white status decline. Pape has been researching those who were arrested for storming the Capitol. He says they don't fit the old profiles of extremism. The counties that lost the most non-Hispanic white population are the counties that produced the most January 6th insurrectionists. Most are white and male, but more than half are white-collar, doctors, lawyers, and they come from cities and suburbs, many from places Biden won. 
Pape says his research shows that a driving force among insurrectionists and those that support them is a fear of a white majority becoming a minority and having to give up power. These are the parts of the country where diversity is happening the fastest. This is dovetailing with rhetoric by politicians and, and by media figures, stoking fear about the Great Replacement. To put it simply, they came from places that used to be almost all white and aren't anymore. Nearly 90% are not members of these militant extremist groups. That's the racist conspiracy theory that black and brown people are replacing white people as part of a nefarious democratic plan to take power and steal elections, a theory peddled by people like Tucker Carlson. And it's believed not just by many of the people who stormed the Capitol, but by the vast majority of Republicans. Here's political scientist Hakeem Jefferson again. What's dangerous is when a group like this begins to adopt the mindset or the rhetoric of an oppressed minority. Dangerous because Jefferson says when members of a group that still holds very real privilege, like white people, imagine themselves on the margins, that's when violent white nationalism takes hold. The narrative the January 6th committee has presented, for the most part, has been told in the voices of Republicans and former Trump loyalists. There was one notable exception, Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss. I've always um, been told by my grandmother how important it is to vote and how people before me, a lot of people, um, older people in my family did not have that right. Moss and her mom are both poll workers who Trump attacked by name, leading to death threats and racist attacks. Political scientist Akeem Jefferson says what these two women represent is not a political party or a person in power, but the right of average people to vote a right that for many was only achieved within recent memory. So many black people and black women in particular work on these front lines of democracy. Jefferson says our fragile and incomplete multiracial democracy is in peril. It's not just January 6th. It's also a slow-moving threat from the right, the Supreme Court gerrymandering voter suppression laws, like some of the ones now on the books in Georgia, overseen by Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. He was lauded at the hearings for standing up for democracy and against Trump, but back home, the laws he's championed have made it harder for people of color to vote. January the 6th was a racial project, but the everyday undoings and attacks on American democracy are also a part of a racial project. So, yeah, it's the elephant in the room, but it's the whole damn room. This is all about race all the time. It continues a larger, longer battle that has never really ended over whose votes get counted and whose votes get to count. I'm Sandhya Dirks, NPR News. Ten months after a local teacher was arrested and charged with child abuse, that charge against her has been dropped. 61-year-old Caroline Lee taught for a decade at Darnell Cookman School of the Medical Arts. She was named Teacher of the Year last year. Well, Joy is here now. And Joy, there are several reasons the charge was dropped. Mary and Kent, those are detailed in this document from the state attorney's office called a disposition statement, a notice to drop the charge. The student is not identified in this statement. I spoke with both Caroline Lee and her attorney over the phone tonight. Both declined to comment for our story. Lee has vehemently denied the child abuse charge 
ever since her arrest in October of last year. It made national and international headlines when then 60-year-old Caroline Lee was arrested and charged with child abuse. Police say the recently named Teacher of the Year at Darnell Cookman School of the Medical Arts hit a student in the face. With no witnesses to the incident and no video footage, the state attorney's office cited several reasons for dropping the charge. Lee passed a polygraph test when asked about the incident. Lee also has no criminal record. And the student who accused Lee of abuse has a history of fighting in schools, according to the state attorney's notice to drop the charge. The report says the student was posting threatening messages about the teacher online. Lee asked the student to have a private conversation about the messages. It was after that private meeting, the student accused Lee of slapping and kicking her, making her nose bleed. But the state attorney's office says the student was wearing a mask, preventing the teacher from seeing the student's nose or mouth. Both parties agree that a student desk sat between them during the alleged incident. And the state attorney's office describes the student as significantly taller than the teacher's 5-foot-2-inch frame and that given the relative size of the parties, it would have been extremely difficult for the teacher to have struck the student in the face. Now, last year, after Darnell Cookman families were told about the teacher's arrest, the principal said Lee was removed from the classroom and would not return pending the judicial and internal procedures. No word tonight whether Lee will return to the Duval County school system or whether the student who accused Lee of abuse will face any type of punishment. Y'all niggas, and you gonna be niggas forever, just like us, niggas tonight after a teacher at a Bellevue school is accused of using a racial slur. It apparently happened yesterday. New tonight, our Marlo Lundak has a response from Bellevue schools and from a disappointed parent. John and Lauren, that's right. A parent at Bellevue West tells me he's disgusted and hurt after he says his daughter witnessed her science teacher using a racial slur in class. He's now calling on the school to properly handle the situation before he decides to pull his daughter from the school. You know, we need leaders. If you can't lead, you're in the wrong profession. Jason Cribbs' daughter is a junior at Bellevue West High School. After school on Monday, he got an upsetting phone call from her. A teacher and a student were engaging back and forth. Um, I don't know what exactly was said, uh, but the, um, I guess the student said the N-word. Well, the teacher started repeating that N-word, um, and it continued to repeat it throughout the class. Jason says his daughter was in the class when the white science teacher allegedly began using the racial slur and used it again in front of other school staff. Um, and then I heard that the, um, the dean intervened and the teacher continuously was still saying the N-word as that dean was present. In a statement to Six News, a representative for Bellevue Public Schools says they cannot discuss personnel matters and that, quote, Bellevue Public Schools does not condone the use of racial slurs in any manner or environment from students or staff. Jason says he spoke with the principal at Bellevue West today. He says he got an apology, but was told the teacher will be retained and that his daughter is welcome to move classes. Now, I feel like leaving that teacher in, in that environment, you're not changing anything. This teacher is still going to be walking the hallways. These, teachers are st these students must still be on edge. Now, Jason says he's considering having his daughter switch schools despite her thriving as a student and an athlete at Bellevue West. And I don't, you know, I would hate to go that way, but I'm going to do what I have to do to protect my children. Um, and, you know, that's part of me being a father. I'm going to protect my children and make sure they're, that they're in a safe environment. On your side in Bellevue, Marlo Lundak, 6 News. 
And that parent also tells 6 News that no notice or notification was sent to school families after the incident occurred. And he says that the school could have handled the entire situation in a much better manner. My name is John H. Crawford Jr. I'm the father of the slain John H. Crawford III, who on August 5th was murdered in the biggest retail store in the entire world. That'd be Walmart. Let me, let me say the name loudly for you. Walmart, where most of America spends their money, at one time including myself, but that is no more. He has awarded a Portland man millions after he sued Walmart. He claimed an employee racially profiled him in 2020 and called deputies on him for no reason other than wanting him to leave the store. Fox News' Adrian Thomas is live in North Portland tonight to break down the details of this multi-million dollar lawsuit. Adrian? Yeah, on Friday, a Multnomah County jury awarded $4 million to Michael Mangum. Ma Mangum says in March 2020, he went to the Walmart in Wood Village to buy a light bulb and an, an employee out the store, uh, an employee at the store out of nowhere confronted him and asked him to leave. That led to the police being called. Mangum hopes that his experience can be a teachable moment for the at-risk youth that he serves here in North Portland. Michael Mangum says he couldn't believe it when this Walmart employee, whose name was revealed in court documents as Joe Williams, started being hostile toward him out of nowhere in March 2020, then called police. I'm waiting for the police, and now he's recording me. Court documents would also reveal that Multnomah County Sheriff's deputies knew that Williams had a history of making frequent 911 calls, often making over-exaggerated accusations. Mangum also caught this moment on his cell phone when one deputy who was called to Walmart that day by Williams seemed dismissive of Williams' call. So you telling me right now he's going to trespass me from this property for what reason? Because he wants to. Because he wants to. Deputies defused the situation that day and nothing ended up being done, which led Mangum to sue the big box chain. Mangum works for Home Forward, an affordable housing and youth outreach nonprofit. Mangum says he hopes his experience can be a teachable moment for the youth he serves. I hope they don't focus on the money. You know, that's, that's not my message. You know, my message is that, you know, tell the truth, you know, stand up for yourself you know, when you know you're right. And I just try to teach them to advocate. Like, it started over at Rosa Parks School um, when they're in third grade. Michael introduced us to two high school boys he's worked with since they were in elementary school. They told us that Michael's programs through Home Forward have been an important part of their success in and out of school in their community. Really important because most people out here, they, they only, like, respect you if you give them something. And from him, you get respect no matter what. Yeah. Even though it may be two years later, Mangum says experiencing racial profiling in such a public place like Walmart has reshaped his perspective when working with at-risk youth. Are you going to have more of these kinds of conversations with the youth that you work with? Now oh, that most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. And see, then it gave me a chance to really, really kind of feel where they're coming from. Now, Fox 12 reached out to Walmart for comment on the verdict, and they sent us uh, back a statement which reads in part, quote, we do not tolerate discrimination. We believe the verdict, is, the verdict is excessive and is not supported by the evidence. Mr. Mangum was never stopped by Walmart's asset protection. We are reviewing our options, including post-trial motions. 
Now, Mangum tells us he plans to continue his work serving at-risk youth here in North Portland and across the city. Live in North Portland, Adrian Thomas, Fox 12, Oregon. Mama says police mistreat black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? Is it true? The family of a Camden County woman who was fatally shot during a police raid is now suing the sheriff's office for $25 million. Latoya James was killed at her cousin's home in Woodbine, where police were carrying out a warrant to search for drugs. She was shot during an exchange of gunfire. News for Jackson reporter Brianna Andrews covered a news conference at the Camden County Courthouse today. James, Miss James, Miss Latoya James, the fight for justice begins for a 37-year-old mom whose family is still hurting a year after her death. I, we deserve justice for my child. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Your kids are not supposed to go for you. The James family attorneys announced a federal lawsuit today against multiple deputies involved in the May 2021 shooting, including the county sheriff. They're asking for $25 million and accountability of all officials involved. Attorneys believe this case is no different than the 2020 raid by police officers in Louisville, Kentucky, that left Brianna Taylor dead. Each case involved a shootout that killed an unarmed, innocent black woman. One thing I would say is that if we don't stand for Latoya James, we may be up here standing for you next. Mm. The suit is broken down into four parts, unlawful entry, excessive force, lack of consequences for deputies involved, and unlawful death. And a key part of this suit is that the department did not give James' cousin, Varshawn Brown, enough time to answer the door, which violates Georgia's knock and announce warrant. Now, Reginald, if somebody came to your house at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, knocked down the door, I'm sure you're going to protect your family, right? Absolutely. That's exactly what Mr. Brown did. Rashawn Brown is facing multiple charges, including a felony murder for his cousin's death. As of now, the deputies involved have not faced any charges and were declared justified in using deadly force by local prosecutors. The James family lawyers say they plan to prove their claims are true no matter how long it takes. Brianna Andrews, Channel 4, the local station. Yeah. You're still saying there ain't, there's no profiling, but it is. It is. We're being hunted every day. It's a silent war against African-American people as a whole. The hunt is on. And you're the prey. We are following breaking news tonight out of Crawford County. According to Sheriff Jimmy DeMonte, two sheriff deputies and a Mulberry police officer are on suspension due to an investigation of excessive force. Now, we do want to warn you that in 30 seconds, we will show you that video of the incident that happened in Mulberry earlier today. It is hard to watch, so if you have any small children in the room, you may want to take them out of the room. Tonight, we are hearing from the Crawford County Sheriff's Office. According to Sheriff Jimmy DeMonte, the incident happened at around 10 this morning, starting when Alma police officers received a call about a man making terroristic threats to a gas station employee, spitting on them and threatening to cut off their face. DeMonte says the man then traveled to Mulberry near exit 20 by bike. That's when the Mulberry officer and two Crawford County Sheriff's deputies met with the man. They say it started off calm. Then the man began attacking a Crawford County deputy. DeMonte reports the man pushing the officer on the ground, punching the back of the officer's head, which he says leads to this video we are now going to show you. 
Sheriff DeMonte says the two sheriff's deputies and Mulberry officer are currently on suspension. The Crawford County Sheriff's Office is asking state police to investigate as well, and they will host their own internal investigation. DeMonte also says he told the deputy to go to the hospital to check out their injuries. And as for the suspect, he is currently in the Crawford County Jail on multiple charges, including terroristic threatening and aggravated assault. DeMonte confirms the man was taken to the hospital but refused treatment. And as of now, the deputies and the officer's name have not been released. We also do not have the name of the man arrested. Stay with 5 News as we continue to learn more on this investigation. When you don't vote, you can't sit on a jury. You have no right to complain about the police because you won't even go and vote so you can even sit on a jury. Uh, as I've told, uh, said to the cows when I first started to call in, I spent 11 years on a job where, where I worked for a bank and had to sit in court day after day after day after day. And I watched them select juries. I watched black people going to jail. Black people have white, having white probation officers. And the whole judicial system um, just truncated with white supremacy. And a great deal of it is just... Could have been, some of it could be lessened if black people simply voted. Last week, a Boston criminal defense lawyer who represents a person of color revealed his struggle while selecting a jury in Fitchburg, an experience that culminated in an all-white jury. In fact, he made a TikTok about it. I was doing jury selection this morning, and a guy says, I'm a little bit biased. And the judge was like, oh, what do you mean? Like, or the prosecution? Like, you like the police? The guy's like, nah, I don't really care for black people. Like, I've never had that happen. I've done so many trials, so many jurors, and this guy's like, yeah, I've had some dealings with them, and I just haven't been impressed. That was attorney Joseph B. Simons speaking during a break in court. So how often does this kind of thing occur, and what safeguards are in place to protect against bias in the jury box? Joining us to talk about some of these questions is Northeastern University law professor and GBH legal analyst Daniel Medwed. Good to see you again, Daniel. Good morning, Paris and Jeremy, the dynamic duo. <laughs> so to start, let's go as basic as you can get, at least when it comes to the law in the U.S. What are the constitutional requirements about jury trials in criminal cases in the U.S.? Sure. So both the U.S. Constitution and the Massachusetts Declaration of Rights provide that criminal defendants have a constitutional right to a jury trial. That trial has to occur in the district where the alleged crime took place, not necessarily where the defendant or the victim live, but where the events happened. What's more, the defendant has a right to what's known as a fair and impartial jury, jurors who are free of bias and who represent a fair cross-section of the relevant community. Now, Massachusetts has a very interesting and, and somewhat alarming history in this regard. So on the one hand, the positive side is that we were in the vanguard of states, one of the first states to allow black men to serve as jurors. There's a case from Worcester in the 1850s where two black men served on a criminal jury. But on the other hand, we dragged our feet when it came to integrating women fully into the process. It wasn't until 1949, I believe, that our state legislature passed a law sort of affirmatively encouraging this practice. And even then, we were tardy in fully uh, implementing that objective. 
So, you know, we always hear about us as U.S. citizens having this right to a fair and impartial jury, but let's talk about what that actually means in practice, Daniel, because just going off of the example that we heard at the top, right, these things can come through in jury selection, and even though that one juror was taken out, it still ended up as an all-white jury, and we know that I think at least 16% of the time or something like that, an all-white jury will end up convicting a person of color um, over doing so with a white defendant. So how does that play out and what are some of the obstacles that can come about when trying to create a fair and impartial jury? Well, well, there are lots of obstacles. Here are two of them, two main ones. The first is really structural and there's not much you can do about it. What if the crime occurs in a very homogenous community where the racial and ethnic makeup of the population doesn't include many people who match the defendant's identity? very little you can do in that situation. The second scenario is much more common. Let's say in theory, you could assemble a pretty diverse jury pool, a representative jury pool. How do you ferret out bias? How do you winnow down the pool so that folks are fair and impartial? Um, lawyers and the judge have an opportunity to ask questions of prospective jurors. It's called the voir dire process as part of jury selection, but people are seldom forthcoming with their foibles, their biases, their prejudices. That's what makes the Fitchburg case that you mentioned at the top so interesting, because the prospective juror was quite upfront about his uh, racism, about his biases. So short of that rare situation, lawyers basically have to resort to gut instinct, basically profile jurors about who would be good or who would be bad for their client. You mentioned um, how lawyers um, and judges can ask um, potential jurors questions. And Lawyers have the option of striking jurors from the pool, right? How exactly does that work? Yeah, well, there are two ways that, that lawyers can do that. The first is called a challenge for cause. And that's where you strike a juror because they exhibit a clear bias or a conflict of interest. Say the prospective juror is related to the victim or is an ex-police officer in a case where police testimony is gonna prove vital. You can just strike them for cause. The second tool is much more nuanced and trickier. It's called a peremptory challenge. And that's when you can strike a juror for no articulable reason, without any explanation. In Massachusetts, each side, the defense and the prosecution, has four peremptory challenges in a criminal case. It goes up to 12 in cases where the defendant's facing a life sentence. But it really is a, a, a tool that is fraught with the risk of misapplication. We're talking with GBH legal analyst Daniel Medwed about jury selection and the risk of racial bias in the jury box. So, Daniel, you just mentioned this idea of preemptory challenges. How can we make sure that they're used appropriately and that lawyers don't use them as a ruse to strike, say, all people of color from a jury pool? Well, for many years, that's exactly what happened, especially in uh, the, the long and sorted history of the Jim Crow era South, where prosecutors would try to craft an all-white jury in cases involving a black defendant or where the de white defendant is accused or was accused of a crime of racial violence. In 1986, the Supreme Court tackled this head on in a case called Batson versus Kentucky, a very famous case in which the court basically empowered trial judges to scrutinize the pattern in which prosecutors utilize these peremptory challenges, and if they detect a racially discriminatory pattern, they can bounce the case. They can find a constitutional violation. But despite that case, which at this point is you know 36 years old, this happens a lot. Let's talk a little bit about what happens at the back end. Um, once the jury's selected, the trial's going through, um, and they're in the deliberation room. 
how and can you at all, I mean, detect whether racism is part of the deliberations? Like, can jurors tell the court details about what is said behind closed doors? This is fascinating because the answer is generally no. You can't engage in what lawyers call post-verdict inquiry into the jury deliberations for fear that the threat of that examination would chill the conversation, that people wouldn't speak their minds or vote their consciences if they knew they had to be accountable to the judge afterwards. It's a really interesting issue and it's kind of counterintuitive because we have this really, really elaborate system before then where we ferret out the bad evidence and we leave only relevant and reliable information. Um, but on the back end, we slam the door shut we don't go into the deliberation room. Now, the rationale here, and I'm curious if you guys buy this, is that if we give the best evidence possible to 12 fair and impartial jurors, more often than not, they'll reach a just outcome. You know, that of course begs the question we've already explored, how do you get 12 fair and impartial jurors? Well, this is fascinating, Daniel. We will have to continue this conversation. That's GBH legal analyst and Northeastern law professor, Daniel Medwed. Thanks so much. Thank you both. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Well, two and a half days of deliberating and still no decision from a Fairfax County jury tonight on the fate of a 19-year-old accused of murdering two of his high school classmates. A series of back and forth social media threats between rival groups at South County High School last year led to a fight in a garage. And then Zachary Picard opened fire. Bruce LeShan has been following this case from the Fairfax County Courthouse. What's going on inside the jury room here, obviously largely secret, but the jury has asked the judge repeatedly about one specific piece of evidence, a video recording from inside the house. You cannot see the fight in the video, but you can hear it and you can hear the gunshots. Prosecutors say the audio makes it quite clear that the fight between Burkhardt's friend Nick and at least one of his rivals was largely over when Burkhardt stepped into the garage and the situation went from zero to 350 miles an hour. Within a few seconds, you hear one gunshot, then a pause and a second gunshot. Who did the shooting? Me. Why? They were fighting right there. He would not get off. Burkhardt testified that four guys had jumped his friend and said he shot 17-year-old Urshin Alasher because he thought he was about to kill his buddy. And then 16-year-old Calvin Van Pelt when he and another guy ran at him. Prosecutors say that whole story makes no sense. They say Burkhardt saw an opportunity to take out a rival he did not like and seized it. Jurors have several choices, first or second degree murder, manslaughter, or justifiable homicide and self-defense. We'll let you know if and when this jury decides. At the Fairfax County Courthouse, Bruce LeShan, WUSA 9.
Turner Diaries. Sold over half a million copies. Who do you think is buying it? Eric Rudolph, the Olympic bomber. Way Page, who shut up the Sikh temple. Larry Ford, developing typhoid and cholera. William Carr, with the cyanide bomb. Anthrax, ricin, botulism, C4, IEDs. I could go on like this for hours, and all of them are white supremacists. The state of hate here in Florida, white supremacy organizations are becoming more visible and reported anti-Semitic and other hate incidents are at their highest levels in decades. In fact, just today we learned a Florida man was found guilty for trinh to drive an African-American man and his family off a Pinellas County road, then attacked the man yelling racial slurs. And now Jordan Patrick Leahy faces up to 10 years in prison. But this is just the latest example of the state of hate here in Florida. I-Team investigator Adam Walzer is breaking down what's happening and why you should start paying attention. Charlottesville, Virginia, five years ago this month, more than 800 miles away, but with ties to Tampa Bay. You saw a lot of groups. You will not replace us. Who saw that as ideally their coming out party. Chaos erupted in a clash between demonstrators and counter-protesters. Charlottesville was specifically about seeking attention. National attention came after a white supremacist from Ohio drove into the crowd, killing a woman. Among those in Charlottesville, members of a neo-Nazi group from Lakeland, led by a 45-year-old self-proclaimed commander who's listed in a recent arrest report as unemployed. This month after Charlottesville, 14 of the group members showed up at a gay pride parade in Detroit. Five of their members who were in attendance were armed, two with long guns. They wanted a Charlottesville uh, number two. Last year, the Lakeland man was arrested in Arizona. I'm the leader of the largest neo-Nazi organization in America. Police say he pulled a gun on a group of African Americans. I'm so glad y'all pulled up because he was ready to kill us. While awaiting trial on that charge, he was arrested in Orlando, where deputies say he pepper sprayed a Jewish University of Central Florida student at a demonstration. A second suspect was arrested after punching the young man. He's the one with a swastika tattoo on his neck being questioned by a detective. Do you hold any anti-Jewish sentiment? Uh, no, I, I've never really dealt with Jews. I've been in prison, you know, most of my life. How do I square it with a guy with an SS tattoo on his forearm, a swastika on his neck, and skinhead written above his eye doesn't have a problem with Jewish people? I didn't say I didn't, but I said my fight, my fight uh, has been in prison and the Southern Poverty Law Center says that Lakeland neo-Nazi organization is among 53 hate groups identified last year in Florida. The Anti-Defamation League reports anti-Semitic incidents in Florida reached an all-time high last year, with 190 reported incidents, a 50% increase over 2020. Their goal oftentimes is to mobilize to these events with the intent to commit violence or, in, or you know, coerce others to engage in violence on their behalf. John Lewis is a research fellow at the Program on Extremism at George Washington University, which has uncovered that two dozen Floridians charged in the attack on the Capitol 
were affiliated with white supremacy groups. Of the 850 or so, about 90 defendants of January 6th from Florida, including, I think, a, a, a bit over a dozen Proud Boys and Oath Keepers each. It's an incredible spectacle, right, to see how they train. Kelly McBride of the Pointer Institute for Media Studies in St. Petersburg started her career covering cross burnings and goose-stepping skinheads in rural Idaho. She now believes media coverage gives fringe groups legitimacy, which helps them recruit. What we need to know more is the abstract idea that these groups are out there, that they are everywhere, that they change strategies every so often. That neo-Nazi commander from Lakeland agreed to do a Zoom interview, but only after I assured him that I'm not Jewish. We're not sharing his name or the name of his organization or any of the sound from the interview. But he sat down calmly in front of a backdrop of downtown Lakeland and talked about his hatred of Jewish people, black people, and gay people, his admiration for Adolf Hitler, and his belief in an all-white society. And while 98% or 99% or 99.5% of those that are in the United States may totally despise that view, you're wondering what's happening with that half a percentage. Tampa attorney Jonathan Ellis serves on the Jewish Community Relations Council. When we cover things like people waving the flags at the convention center, is that good that people know that this happened or is it encouraging people to do stunts like this? I don't think you can have a rise of Nazi activity or white supremacist activity without the news actually covering it and looking into it. However, as the coverage goes, the greater the coverage, Generally, there's more people being attracted to it. Robert Bowers spewed anti-Semitic comments as he opened fire. Ellis says people who go down the wrong path can end up committing violent acts, like the mass shootings at a Pittsburgh synagogue. I don't know how we deal with evil. An El Paso Walmart. This is an absolute racist hate crime. And a Buffalo grocery store. All racially motivated hate crimes perpetrated by people with white supremacist views. There are numbers and statistics that, that don't lie, that you can very, very simply look at the rise in hate crimes, the rise in anti-Semitic, anti-Black, anti-Asian acts of hate. You do have a group of people who believe in that poison. Hillsborough County NAACP President Yvette Lewis says her organization gets weekly hate mail, including this letter that arrived the day of our interview. So this is how it comes, Yeah. like this. No return address. No return address. Not even the name of your organization. No. Inside a rambling message of hate. It has a lot of, um, you know, the N-word wow. and stuff. You want to ask this person why, but we can't find this person. Because he's hiding. He's anonymous. Yeah. But he could be standing right across the street. She says it's up to the community to fight back. Hate never prevails. That we're all in this world. When you cut me, I bleed. I think we have to give the audience context, hope, and solutions. Florida Holocaust Museum Chairman Mike Eagle is at the forefront of that effort. He showed us a train car that carried thousands of Jews to their deaths during the Holocaust. Horrible, horrible things happened. Uh, people were murdered just for who they were. It was a systematic genocide. He speaks at schools and community gatherings penetrating through hate with education. We're running a race. Who's going to get to that person's ear first? I'm I-Team investigator Adam Walser with photojournalist Matt McGlashan taking action for you.
that seems like just a part of racism, white supremacy. There's going to be some confusion on the part of non-white people about racial classifications. That just seems like that's just going to Absolutely. Be. That's why I said that's one of the main, you know, out of the six uh, racial confusion things that they do, the tailoring and all like that, that's one of the main ones, racial classification confusion. When they first started classifying people, it was just three classifications. Now it's 21. How did that happen? People haven't changed that much on the planet in the last 200, uh, 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 what, 1700, right? That's when that, uh, I think it was 1700 when it first started. No, 1800, when they had three classifications in this area of the world. Now it's 21. But white always stands by itself. Every time they have taken a classification, set up a classification system, white is not even in alphabetical order. White is always at the top and always stands alone. It starts off. Just look at any of the scales, I mean, where it says racial classifications. Pick out any of them. At the top is white. And then from there, I mean, they just go into all kinds of stuff. Guamanian, Shamoro, some other race, and on and on and on. Just look at any of them. Punch it up on the computer, all the racial classifications, and see what you're looking at. White is always stands alone. Black people are African-American, Negro, black, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all this type, type of thing. Guamanian, Puerto Rican, Hawaiian, Native American, and Alaskan Native. And all of that other confusion. Everybody else is some kind of confusion. It ain't no confusion about W-H-I-T-E. Just look at it on paper. That's the way it is. White, W-H-I-T-E, that's all, period, behind that. It ain't no strung out about white Scandinavian, white Italian, or white Cubans, or no, none of that, none of that, none of that. This is, these are not photos classifications. These are the classifications that are official classifications for the whole world. So the question is raised, who makes these classifications? And I say, somebody white. Who else? Because even if you're going to do it in what you call a democratic fashion, or, you know, algebraic fashion, at least, you would say, okay, everything being equal, or supposed to be, white would be somewhere near the bottom in the listing, simply because it starts with the word W just on that alone. No, but they put white at the top, and there's a reason for that. Has anybody thought of that? Every time a census is taken, white starts, you know, white. We start with white, and then we'll deal with the rest of the scraps later. But get that on the board first. Why? Because that's the only one that counts. Everything else is just whatever anybody wants, you know, whatever whatever we say it is as we go along from day to day.
mixed race. Oh, and on and on and on. But white stands alone. And everybody on the planet is supposed to know what that means. California state agencies will begin to collect lineage data from African-American employees, according to a first-in-the-nation law recently signed in Sacramento. The agencies will collect data on demographic categories, including African-American employees who are descendants of enslaved people in the United States and black employees whose ancestors were not enslaved. The request for information results from the decision by the California Reparations Task Force that reparation eligibility for black Californians should be geared toward descendants of enslaved people. State employees will not be required to provide the information, and not all reparations advocates are pleased with the lineage-based decision by the Reparations Task Force. Joining me is Chris Largson. He is the lead organizer of the Coalition for a Just and Equitable California. And Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great honor and privilege to be here. Thank you. Why do you believe this lineage data is important for state agencies to collect? As someone who myself is a descendant of persons who were enslaved in this country, we are a people who are a specific group of people. And we've been here for hundreds of years, 350, 400 plus years. And from a moral and a human rights perspective, we are a specific group of people and we deserve and need to be recognized as such by our own government. As I've said previously, up until this law was passed, there was no city, no county, no state agency you could go to in the state of California and say, how many African-Americans are descendants of persons who were enslaved in this country living here? What is the specific condition, specific reality of African-Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in this country living here? We've used in the past this very broad, very big category called Black slash African-American. And that category includes many different types of subgroups. And our subgroup is one of those in that Black or African-American category. And we have specific needs specific to our specific community, largely because, and this, this is the second reason why this is important, largely because we live with us and have within us the legacy of U.S. chattel slavery. Why is California starting with state employees in particular to provide this information? Yeah, great question. So California is starting with state employees first because the state has more control over the information that it can collect with respect to its own employees. So it was sort of the easier place to start. The state has a, something around two and a half, you know, 2.6 million employees. And so it's a great place to start. Our work though will of course be to expand this outside and beyond state employees, but it was sort of the easiest place to start. What do you think this ancestry information from African-Americans who are descendants of enslaved people, what do you believe this data will tell us? It's an interesting question because part of what we know now from some other types of information that we've collected and gathered, just not from government agencies, but from other research that has been done that also breaks down the Black and African-American subgroup by lineage, we know that within the Black and African-American subgroup, 
African Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in this country are the lowest performing subgroup inside of that category with respect to wealth, with respect to education, with respect to income, with respect to employment. And so that's what we expect to see, that we are among the lowest performing groups outcome-wise. And that also then helps us actually design programs and services, solutions, and interventions that actually address those specific material conditions. Now, you believe that collecting lineage data on descendants of enslaved people is essential to affirm the identity and personhood of yeah. African Americans. Well, can you explain that? This is really something special here in California, this particular uh, way and, and approach that we're going to do to actually start to change the way we collect data, because it actually affirms who we are as a people. It says to us that our government sees us, that our, our government recognizes us as a specific group of people, not just inside of a category with other groups of people who may look like us, but don't share our history, don't share the history of 256 or 270 years of forced labor, and then 100 so years of legal segre segregation, and then from then until now, whatever you want to call this. And then finally, it enables us to actually do something about what we see as our lived reality, the first of which is actually to do reparations, but there's a lot more we can do specifically for us as a specific group of people. Yeah, this new data collection is, I know, a big victory for your organization. And your organization yeah. is the All-Volunteer Coalition oh, yeah. for a Just and Equitable <laughs> California. How closely have you been working with the Reparations Task Force and what's your next objective? Yeah, thanks for those questions. So we helped get the final version of the law written. We actually helped get the law passed. Originally also, we were at every single committee hearing and, and, and speaking with legislators. We helped set up the signing ceremony that the governor attended. We, we worked to help get individuals recommended to be selected to the task force, actually the chair of the task force, Camilla Moore, is a former CJEC organizer. And we've continued our work since the task force sat in 2021 to do community outreach. We've, we've held probably now close to 20 community meetings, town halls, and listening sessions since the effort started. Next steps for, for us, uh, on the data collection front, we want to, one, work to successfully implement this. The, the data collection will start in 2024. We want this to expand to every single city in the state of California. We want every county in the state of California also to, to start collecting data this way. We want the federal government to see us as a model and see us as an example and update the 2030 census to actually have a specific category for African-Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. And then on the California reparations front, we're gonna to continue to work with the California reparations task force in its which is which is going into its final year of work to help them develop the forms of rep reparations and to put together what will be the nation's first state reparations plan, which should be released next summer. I've been speaking with Chris Lodgson, the lead organizer of the Coalition for a Just and Equitable California. And Chris, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And a 17-time NBA All-Star. The third highest score in NBA history, the 2008 MVP, two-time NBA Finals MVP, five-time NBA 
champion, a 6-6 guard from Lower Marion High School, where he won the title in 1996. Number 24, Kobe Bryant! A court victory for the family of late basketball star Kobe Bryant. A judge has ordered Los Angeles County to pay $31 million for the handling of graphic photos of a helicopter crash that killed nine people in 2020, including Bryant and his daughter Gigi. Brian's widow, Vanessa, will receive $16 million. The other plaintiff, Chris Chester, who lost his wife and daughter in the crash, will be awarded $15 million. Los Angeles Times reporter Aline Chekmedjian was in court, and she joins us now. Aline, this case is about how first responders shared photos of human remains. What did these police and fire officers uh, do with the photos that uh, the jury determined was so wrong? Yeah, that's a good question. So deputies and firefighters ended up hiking up to the hillside where the crash occurred and taking photos. And then we heard in the trial that they shared them amongst each other. Um, We know that they were shown by a deputy to a bartender in Norwalk. They were shown among firefighters and their spouses during an awards gala at um, in Universal City and what amounted to, according to one witness, to a party trick. Uh, They were passed around from one deputy to another as the pair played video games. Um, And so during this 11-day trial, we heard from, you know, all these deputies about what they did, and they tried to explain why. And the jury decided that what they did was inappropriate. How was this uh, found out? So actually, it was an LA Times article um, investigation that published about a month after the crash and a month after this happened. At the bar in Norwalk, where the deputy showed photos, the bartender that saw them ended up going to another table and telling the patrons there about what he had seen. And one of the people that was sitting at the table was so disturbed that he filed a complaint to the sheriff's department. And so the sheriff's department got the complaint the next day. They ended up going down to the bar, getting surveillance footage of what happened the night before and seeing um, the deputy sharing the photos with the bartender. And one controversial thing that happened was that instead of, you know, launching a formal investigation and, you know, taking all the deputies' phones and investigating it, the sheriff, Alex Villanueva, offered all the deputies that were involved in this scandal amnesty. He told them if they came clean and deleted the photos that he they would not be punished. Eileen, you've been reporting in Los Angeles uh, a lot on the sheriff's department for a while now. What did lawyers say uh, about this case relates to the culture among first responders in L.A.? So the jury decided that there was a culture problem in the sheriff's department with sharing these types of photos among law enforcement officers. Um, There was an expert who testified about death books that cops keep. Um, And even the sheriff himself said in media interviews that were played for jurors that this was a problem in law enforcement, that they sort of collect photos of crime scenes and accident scenes as sort of a scrapbook of their careers. The photos, uh, thankfully, have never been uh, seen publicly. They were shared within their circles. Um, Was Vanessa Bryant worried, and and the others in this uh, case, were they worried, other plaintiffs, were they worried that someday they could be made public? Yeah, that was the biggest concern for them. So, you know, lawyers in the county has argued that the photos were never publicly disseminated. They were never posted online or published in the press or seen by the plaintiffs. But 
uh, Ms. Bryant and Mr. Chester, the other plaintiff, are arguing that we have no idea how widely they were spread because the county didn't do a thorough job investigating that. And now their biggest fear is that one day they'll wake up and see it on social media. That's LA Times reporter Aline Chekmedjian. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Context of white supremacy. I have to go back to look at the transcript again, but that verdict came out on Kobe Bryant Day in Los Angeles, 824. Uh, he wore number eight for the first portion of his career and then wore number 24 for the final portion of his career, 20-year NBA career. Uh, the late, great Kobe Bryant, delectable Negro, my goodness, if we had not read that book before, wow, I think we would have been reading it, that Kobe, I don't even know if people paid attention to that case or not, you all can let me know, I generally get the sense, even though I'm not really around a lot of black people directly, so-called, that the, when Kobe Bryant initially died in January 2020, that there was way more conversation about the announcer. I think she slipped and said nakers and people thought that she uh, made it, it almost sounded like she was saying niggers, but I think she did say nakers the way it came out. I saw way more commentary about that. And so then they, I, that was so trivial. They call us nigger all the time. Like whatever. She may have actually <coughs> actually misspoken. Sometimes you get, you know, caught up or what have you that could have happened. Uh, there are way more examples of white supremacy racism that are substantially more egregious than that slip, if that's what it was, whatever, like this. I really haven't heard as much commentary, and I feel like this is way, I mean, lynching postcards in the 21st century with Kobe Bryant and his daughter. And there were white people. There were seven other people who died in that crash. What in the world? How are you out? They said at the bar. Shot of tequila. Bang. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Kobe. Look at that. Look at that. Burnt up. Oh my gosh. You can't believe it. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. They said they went out. They're at the wedding party and all these places. Let me do a party trick. Sit down. Sit down. Sit down. We'll do, get drinks and everybody a little later. Give out the bouquet and stuff. Let me look. 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 Watch this. Bang. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Seen that before? Oh my God. Ghastly. Look at that. Look at that. Who even wants to see such a thing? And just because we are reading back to back books on serial killers, didn't I just say, like literally 48 hours ago, there's something really perverse about white culture? Because this is lynching postcards. We've talked about that lynching a spectacle many many times delectable negro even with those lynching postcards the post office had a really difficult time stopping whites racists from sharing these graphic images <clears throat> of negros who've been lynched and castrated and all the it, it was really difficult to get white people to stop doing this Kobe Bryant 
delectable Negro, we will be talking about this in detail because that is white culture. All those championships and people sit around for 20 years, two decades. Not just Southern California and L.A., but all over California and the world, but especially, say, it's Kobe Bryant Day. They don't have Magic Johnson Day in Los Angeles. They don't have Shaquille O'Neal Day in Los Angeles. They have Kobe Bryant Day. They don't have, what, anybody else you can think of in the L.A. area. They don't have O.J. Simpson Day either. Kobe Bryant Day. I don't think they, they have Ronald Reagan Day in California. He was president. I lived in California. I don't remember Ronald Reagan Day. Kobe Bryant Day. And they're swapping. And, and his daughter, man. I, ugh. We will hopefully have whole program just to put all of that in context to show the continuity of white culture. What it means to be white. But serial killer. I just said that swapping. want to see all the macabre photos and crime scene and oh he raped him and oh let's see his rectum was torn in half and they got the pictures and oh his skull was bad come on who wants to see all of this individuals classified as white a tiny might oh the grandsister dr francis Cresswellsing, she would emphasize individuals classified as white are a tiny minority of the global population which necessitates constant mass killing of non-white people. Maybe that's why there's so much celebration of serial killers. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade, and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date saturday august 27 2022 so i have been told our weekly compensatory call in dial in if you have thoughts observations to share the number 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate email is untiljustice at gmail.com untiljustice at gmail.com Anywho, let's see. Quickly before we get to uh, folks who dialed in, not too quickly. Uh, we should be here on Monday. Normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I am not giving out any more details because Gus T. Renegade, worthless Negro in Virginia, for 13 plus years that we have been on the air we don't have homies, friends, tag team partners, staff, black brothers, black sisters that love Gus T. That is not the case. Hated, despised, all throughout the known universe. 
we have individuals who sabotage. I just went online and saw randomly someone said that no count Gus he is a confirmed snitch and they had snitch in quotes. I turned him off a long time ago. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, worthless Negro from Virginia. Anyway, we have saboteurs. They will go when a guest is supposed to come on the program and see, get their information and then go and contact the person and disrupt, see if they can get them to not come on the program, that sort of thing. We've had this for years. It's in the archives. Uh, with Dr. Cambon. I remember the first time he was a guest on the program where I even discussed this, where people, man, that no-count Gusty is a coon and a snitch. You shouldn't talk to him. So I'm just not putting the information up. Now you won't have the opportunity. I guess for some people that means, oh, man, we like to prepare and marry. Oh, well. If I was, I guess, loved and had lots of cousins and black brothers and sisters, then I would continue to do it that way, but that is not the case. And incidentally, that is exactly what Gusty specifically, I guess exclusively because there was nobody else there, predicted way back in 2007 when the cows began. University of Washington, we were on the air for two months. They kicked us off, came back in February of 2009, 13 plus years that we've been back on the air. I said, predicted correctly, even if we're just kind of halfway mumbling, stumbling, bumbling in a halfway correct direction about solving this problem, white people are going to oppose us, toss us off the air and make it very difficult. And that is exactly what it has been for 13 years for back of the bus. And I thought we didn't have a budget. Same thing. Staff. Nothing has changed. Still no budget. Staff. What else? And all of this extraordinary opposition which was never the case before because no one ever cared what I had to say or what my future plans were going to be or who I was even going to be talking to that's not the case now hasn't been for some time so we'll be here on Monday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific sabotage that hate harder in fact and one more thing if I add same thing I won't do the profanity way I did it when I said I hate talking to non-white people Man, if you ever in your life, in 13 plus years, and even before that, think for 30 think for half of a second. All of the non-white people that I hear all the time, including people that call this program, who I think are totally illogical, do not make sense, are saying things that would be harmful to non-white people if they adopt that way of thinking, behaving that's being suggested I do not go out sabotage look to cause problems for other victims of racism just because we do not agree about white supremacy racism that's what we have brothers and sisters Pro as well anywho so we'll be here Monday you'll find out all the information I guess if you show up uh, in that same vein invest we don't have a budget we have lots of haters saboteurs invest if you think the program is constructive listener supported counter racist radio hit the blog for the cows racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com when you hit the page paypal button is in the top right corner uh, you'll also see the links for 
Cash App, Venmo, PayPal even. Much obliged to all the folks who have invested for 13 plus years, uh, kept the cows on the air, hopefully providing accurate, constructive information. Should be consistent as well to be on this long uh, about what it means to be white, what white supremacy racism is and how it works. Hopefully we have been continued to be worthy of your time and energy. We do not have any to waste. You can also invest. Hit the wish list at Amazon.com. It is under Gus T. Renegade. Much obliged to all the folks who've nabbed items over the past uh, decade plus. Uh, again, hopefully worthy of your time and energy. Uh, you can also invest by sharing links to the cows, social media, other folks that you're around, programs. I try to tailor, send programs that are specific to what that person's interests are or what they are curious about. We have such diverse content over the years. One request that I will make, I super appreciate all the folks who share, let people know that we're on live, give out the numbers so that people can participate, all that good stuff. I will request share the program, post the links, link it if you have real estate online, link us there, what have you. Always appreciate it. Send out your favorite episodes. Thank you kindly. I would appreciate it if you do not share this broadcast or share link when you go out to post your content. Do not share us with other people. That's great. If you listen to a lot of content, lots of media, learn, learn, learn. That's what we're trying to do. Universal man, universal woman are informed. However, since it's United Independent and we all do not have the same views, I always get nauseous and want to vomit when I see people share the cows alongside individuals who name call and are coon this and coon that and even the black is thou and black is this and black is that because that is not the cows. In fact, it makes me so nauseous. I would prefer if you do not share the cows at all if you gotta just do your mass share you gotta share us alongside all these other folks and I say the same thing when I see people they do that they'll share Neely Fuller Jr and then they'll have next to somebody who coon this coon that hey victims guaranteed qualified we can all take our positions as non-white people victims of racism but man Share that individually. I mean, maybe that's asking too much, but I mean, if you got to share this person and their coon, this coon, that, fine. Do one post for them. Then you can come back and just do one more post. That's more feed, more uh, more followers, right? More likes. Then you just come back and make a separate post and you can add all the people who do not name call who have similar content. It is confusing when you have folks who have contradictory content being posted together. Like, wait a minute. This person is saying no name calling. This person is coon every other word. What? There's already a lot of confusion. So for the cows, most of the folks that are doing content do not promote content similar to this. Ideas, thoughts about racism, white supremacy. Even if we use the term white supremacy, we are not saying the same thing. Evidence of that is, oh, it overflow Even just yesterday apparently there are not a many programs that regularly 
regularly emphasize, hey, honorary white is incorrect. Racial classification fusion, big problem. There's only one race. Apparently, there are not a whole lot of programs that make that a regular point of emphasis. In fact, it seems there are a lot of programs that strongly emphasize the black race. I'm saying that that's totally an error. It's not even supported by logic. That's why I'm making the request firmly. Please, if you're going to do your mass post, thank you for sharing. Do not share the cows alongside other folks that are name calling and all of this. Just share us by ourselves. If you can't do a, a solo shout to the cows link, boom. Just don't share. Share all the other folks that are doing whatever they're doing, saying whatever they're saying that they are qualified to do as victims of racism but be clear I know a lot of listeners victims of racism we don't listen well we're not saying the same thing just because we're all talking about racism white supremacy listen more closely along the way make sure you pay attention oh yeah they have said something about honorary whites on this program many 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 times over the 13 years in fact I could do that again and just restrict it to just the months of this year we've talked about this repeatedly even within the last 60 days anywho whole program to come on that honorary whites racial classification confusion now, along the same lines, with we are not saying the same thing, I've made this a point of emphasis for a long time. In fact, I can just read right from social media. Despise this came up today, has come up for years on the cows. In fact, it's come up so many times. We have a whole program on that. We'll have one for honorary white soon, too. Uh, and in fact, timing. The report about California where they're going to get specific lineage about the black people they didn't say they're getting lineage for the white people not going to find out how many people from Ukraine coming here and taking jobs and such eh. get information about the black people why so that they will be affirmed the government sees you whatever that means All of that, go back to what I said at the beginning. Dr. Welsing made it a point of emphasis. The individuals classified as white are a tiny percentage of the global population. Every report that I have seen for the past, what do we want to say, 15 years, the entire duration of the cows has been saying, oh my goodness, population of whites dropping. Everybody, Jane Elliott, Dr. Welsing, Countdown, Shauna Swan, we just read that in the book club into last year. Judith Finlayson talking about the sperm count of whites, population of whites because of the bad diet and all that. Uh, the sad American, standard American diet, all of that. If all of that is true and or even if whites think that it's true. I suspect that there will be 
lots of work being done and one is going to be racial classification confusion I can only conclude just based on what I've seen the last 30 days we're going to have this information in the workplace California with the reparations as well that's also with California we talked about this in neutralizing workplace racism all California the largest racial bias they didn't say racism they said racial bias suit in the history of California state with so-called Latinos that's another one in the word God honorary white Latino do not use why these are not racial classifications confusion white non-white that's what we got not Latino honorary white and all the rest now add even more categories Neely Fuller Jr. produce justice grab the book don't just uh, the metaphor babysit the book where it's just hanging out you've never cracked a page or read three pages whatever the case lots of individuals in that group apparently make sure read in the word God honorary white because I think it's a whole page we've read it here repeatedly and you can read the section on Latino as well and pull the wool over your eyes because that is in the word God got that verified from a listener said that from last week but anyway um, that is so critical in my opinion because whites if they're going to promote, which is what I view, if it's going to be mainstream media, NPR, California Public Radio, and part of their reparations package, like, oh, we got to do all this differentiation. And then the Latinos are getting on the black people, too. And all of this where, as Mr. Fuller said, hey, white stands alone. We don't do any of that. I was even thinking, do they have foundational white Americans? Does that exist? Do they do that? I don't hear that at all. Do they do that? Do they have like the I'm an American Caucasian? I'm a British car. I don't even it sounds strange. I haven't even heard it before. Has anybody heard that? Because I have never heard that. I'm an Australian Caucasian. As he said on all the forms. They don't do that. It is W H I T E N at the top. It's not even alphabetical, as he pointed out. Genius Neely Fuller Jr right in your face they'll come and disaggregate everything so now there might be a hundred different categories for black on the next census Caribbean black African black US black Canadian black and on and South American black same question that I asked so what problem is all of this when we get all these categories and all this what is this going to solve again is this going to help us replace white supremacy with justice like immediately are you telling me truthfully individuals classified as white the only way that they can stop mistreating the negra is to break down the black people based on where they were born or where their grandparents were born or whatever are you serious I'd rather hear a racist joke than that come on you have to tell me something 
in my view, all of this, that C word that I just said, confusion, and generally what happens when you get the one C word, confusion, you get the other C word, conflict, and it's always conflict with other victims of racism. That is what I am submitting all of this is, and it's proven every single Time. The individuals that come on social media and they're talking about all of this and I'm a black person in the U.S., U.S. slavery and I'm with that victims guaranteed qualified. But when they come to me talking about this, it's conflict. And then when I look on their timeline, name calling conflict, always directed other victims of racism. That's what I would expect. The problem is not black people born wherever you think you are. and again universal man I am not everything about that in my view I'm tied to this specific spot of land look at that again what is white connected to what spot of land I'm white I just go wherever in the universe space, space station I go anywhere in the universe and I just take over. In fact, I go anywhere in the universe, stay there long enough and just say, I'm indigenous here. I've always been here. That's white. They get the rest of us stuck on. This is my chunk. This is my territory. As opposed to universal woman. That's the goal. Universal man. Not bragging about being black. Whatever that means. I'm looking at my timeline, social media. It reads, this is from nine hours ago. Why does the context of white supremacy use the term non-white rather than saying black or African-American, etc.? Question, why define yourself with a negative? Are women referred to as non-males? Are males referred to as non-females, etc.? Isn't it psychological trauma to negate oneself in this way? All of this for anybody who's been listening to the cows like, oh, my God, Jane Elliott, 2010, January. Heard all of this before many times, in fact, which is what I said to her. My response five hours ago, nothing. Absolutely nothing is more traumatic than the system of white supremacy. We have discussed all of this, your questions, in the archives. In fact, it's mostly white women like Jane Elliott and even white women in South Africa, all over the world. White women who've had asked some of the exact same questions, said the exact same thing. It's self and even you don't call yourself a non-female because we're not in a system of female supremacy. We're not even in a system of male supremacy contrary to popular propaganda we're in a system of white supremacy and for some reason that just well not for some reason deliberately by racists that just gets moved to the side and it's we got to get at least catalog and get information about all these black people that are coming in that are born in other places and we got to deal with the latinos and the honorary whites wait a minute we're in a system of white supremacy the my facebook page again is facebook.com the problem is white 
people. Somehow that gets lost all the time. So again, we did a whole program titled The Counter-Racist Logic of the Term Non-White. I linked it for her to check out. Listen, he, she, whomever, this individual, they can check out February 25th, 2021. We did it for Black History Month. How about that? She responded, it may not be more traumatic, but how can constantly negating yourself as being non-white as opposed to affirming, didn't they say that in the clip? Affirming yourself as black or African-American, etc., help defeat racism and white supremacy. And that's key. That tells me that this is someone, like I said, probably not familiar with Mr. Fuller. Maybe they're just back up. No, maybe we are all still learning. Maybe this person is new. Haven't heard of Mr. Fuller. Haven't read his concepts. Maybe they were posting some other content about Pam and other folks. So that's not to assume maybe they're new to all of these concepts. No problem. It's not racism and white supremacy. Racism is white supremacy. That's another one that I've noted before where, man, people are not making the connection. There's only one form of racism also leading us to confusion. That's how we end up with the Latinos are practicing racism and all this. Anyway, she continues, uh, implying that I am white identified for raising issues won't silence me. I read exactly what I said. I did not use the term white identified. I said... It's generally been white women who've been the ones who have raised this issue about, oh, my goodness, you're negating yourself. You're not calling yourself a non-female. Generally speaking, white women. And we've got it in the archives, got some evidence to support what I'm saying. And I posted the episode twice so this person can listen or no. But all of that, in, in fact, my response to all of that, that right there is the power of white supremacy racism that they have us thinking black and proud in the 21st century. Nobody in the universe, even the people classified as black, is jumping up and down and oh, black people are the coolest and the great and they are so affirmed in their negritude. Nobody. In fact, what did I read today? This is what the world, because we just heard the Latino lawsuit. Everybody saw that, right? Kobe Bryant, right? Crash photos, five-time champion. Kobe Bryant day. President Obama heard how he was talked about. This is black people. What was I reading today? I found the book, New York Times. I found the book, Truly Tasteless Jokes, Part 1. That even tells you something right there that they got to put a Part 1 on it. So truly tasteless jokes, part one. This is your Negro affirmation for the day. What's another word for cocoon? The nigger. Let me give you some more affirmation for the day. How do you shoot a black man? Aim for the boom box. They got a whole bunch of them. This is a whole chapter. Let's see. <laughs> Your favorite word. What do you call a black millionaire industrialist? You got a clue on this one already, so you should have this one, right? What do you call a black millionaire industrialist? A tycoon? <laughs> That's your affirmation. 
brothers and sisters, do you feel affirmed in your negritude that everyone in the universe, even black people, that's how we've been conditioned to think about us. I was going to play the Chris Rock clip right there, too. Who more racist? Everybody love Chris Rock, doesn't they? Critical race theorist of our time. That's the affirmation. I don't know what you all are talking about. I've heard that for a billion years. I'm black and I'm proud. James Brown married to a white woman. I've heard all of that. I've talked about that for 13 years. That's why I said, don't post us with the other folks who are on all that. That's fine. Victims guaranteed qualified. I've said consistently, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what I promote here. I don't even see the logic of that. Universal man, universal woman should be way beyond black and proud, especially in the 21st century. It's almost 2025. Bragging on our blackness does not solve problems. Especially the people that do the most talking about blackness when many of them are the very folks who have the highest usage of the word coon. You want one more? Let's get one more. Get our affirmation of negritude in for the day. Let's see. Forget it. Just, it's a whole chapter. It's a whole chapter. Take the whole program. I'll give you two. I'll give you two. What do you call a black Frenchman? Jocks custodian. Last one, last one, last one. Did you hear about the new perfume for, oh, that's difficult to pronounce. They have a lot of pronunciation ones, and some of them you have to, you have to hear it a few times. Let's see. And some of these, I have to, I have to look through to give you another uh, juicy, or maybe I could do one of the, yeah, that's long too. Yeah, these are long. Some of these are long too. I was trying to give you the uh, the shorter ones. They have longer jokes in there, and I'm not trying to do whole stand up routine. But truly tasteless jokes. One, they do not have a Latino section, at least not in part one. <laughs> they do have Asian jokes and you know the whole gambit, but they don't have a whole chapter on uh, any of these folks. But the black people, they have a whole chapter on. Uh, wasps they have a whole chapter on jews uh they have a whole chapter on polish people uh yeah you have to check that out on your own time but i did find that today negro affirmation for the day number again is 720-716-7300 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate the only thing i'll say we'll get our our callers or i'll get two quickly no metaphors please ever 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 on the cows heard jim crow and many i even wrote down more but no metaphors uh the low income home energy assistance program the segment where they were talking about people that are struggling with heat in many areas pennsylvania and other places where they've had heat waves uh and non-white lots of black people no heat or excuse me no air conditioning so they have the low income home energy assistance program or lie heap. Now, when they said it, I just paused like lie heap. <laughs> like we're we're in a system of deception. Lie heap. Lie heap. <laughs> like they couldn't come up with a better name for the program. And then 
all of it like we can get money to get drones and go bomb people all over the world and what we can't get air conditioning air conditioning right it, it reminded me when they say diversity inclusion equity and it's huh die huh lie heap huh. the last one they talked joe williams uh, in oregon that's three hours from where i am could be there let's see it's 8 13 p.m in seattle we could be if we left right now we could be in portland in before midnight we could be there by 11 and have i guess a really late dinner or late coffee or what have you uh in portland joe williams black male went to the walmart followed around they spied on him oh excuse me he was the perpetrator he was mr mangum who was the victim at the walmart joe williams was the security officer they said that Walmart allowed Mr. Williams to keep his job for several months after the incident where he spies and follows around Mr. Mangum and calls the police on him for no reason. Mangum's lawyer said even after the law enforcement refused to take action against Mangum and warned managers that Williams had a history of making false reports to police about customers. My mouth hit the f I played John Crawford the third before I even heard that I saw the and really the only reason I played that report is because of the photo you'd have to go online to see the image his Mr. Mangum's attorney oh my he this white man looks so proud of himself like they I guess after their their four million dollar win or whatever he's standing to me it just looks like oh I know I'm about to get a huge chunk of this nigga boy's uh, settlement money like woo, counting the coins already that's what he looks like to me in the photo that's what caught my attention about all of this but John Crawford III who was killed August 5 2014 at the Walmart toy gun white man sees him oh my gosh this nigger is gonna kill us all and rape us probably oh my god call the police and they come in don't ask anything immediately gun him down right there and then, oh he had a toy gun dang he wasn't being wild and crazy we got the surveillance camera dang and they didn't prosecute anybody this guy has a history of making false can you imagine if a black person worked anywhere and they repeatedly made false reports about cut white people, anybody. You're calling and wasting police about this and you get to keep your job? Come on, I would love to know the racial classification of the folks when he makes these habitual false reports. Joe Williams. Seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. Decode five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see, folks who dialed in with a hand up. If you have commentary to share, line should be open. Uh, see retired firefighter hand up. I'll nab other folks as we get moving. Please do not wait till the last moment if you have commentary to share. Greetings, everyone. 
my report starts off with uh, uh, I was listening to uh, your report from uh, Mumia Abu Jamal, uh, which you do quite often over the 13 years, you know, that you've uh, been in service, uh, where he was talking about, uh, I think, a, uh, something regarding the Black Panther Party, and, and it reminded me of uh, uh, someone that I was uh, close to uh, that was a member of the Black Panther Party, uh, Mr. Charles Bronson, who started the chapter in Sacramento, which is the capital of uh, the state of, the quote-unquote state of California. Uh, and it reminded me, every time I hear, you know, a report on the Black Panther Party, I think of Mr. Bronson. Uh, uh, he basically affected me and several others in the, uh, mainly in the 1980s and the early 1990s uh, with his uh, experiences uh, with the Black Panther Party. Uh, he also assisted me personally uh, because he worked on a quote-unquote job while he was a member of the Black Panther Party uh, and was able to retire <laughs> from the uh the job that he was as a a postal worker uh and through his uh encouragement and suggestions uh it was uh, uh helpful to me to be able to get through that process uh to be able to retire from a quote unquote job uh, uh there was a, a report on the white woman who stabbed to death her non-white black male sexual partner. Uh, uh, she was arraigned uh, in Miami, Dade County uh, a few days ago, and uh, I noticed she was uh, she was uh, wearing a suicide one of those suicide body vests and not uh, in her usual uh, quote unquote. Uh, skimpy style uh, attire that she normally has, that normally she's pictured in. Uh, I would just uh, suggest to stay away from white women. Uh, the only place that white people have in close proximity with us is to be telling the truth and sharing with non-white people viable, constructive information. Outside of that, I don't see uh, too much of the importance of being in close proximity to a white person unless you have to, such as what I did, you know, working uh, in close proximity with them. Uh, there was something else here. Uh, Yeah, uh, and that's that's basically basically uh, uh, my report. I, I did I did have something that I observed while you were talking, uh, Gus. Uh, the only thing I would have to say to your your uh, your statements is uh, is uh, keep 
keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> keep saying what you're saying. I think you're being very logical. You're stating things that are based on logic. And uh, one of the damages that uh, the global system of racist white supremacy has impacted on us is we are very low in when it comes to self-discipline and to having uh, a consistency of constructive uh, uh, discipline to be able to focus. We have a problem with that, and that is primarily induced by the global system of racism, vice supremacy. So uh, my suggestion is to keep saying what you're saying uh, as far as what I've been listening to, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Trying to follow logic, uh, black brother, trying to follow logic. Um, the uh, We have talked about that case down in Florida with that. Now, that's one right there. If I was uh, if I had offspring or what have you, I forgot her name, but I know she was in Hawaii last week. when We talked about it and they decided to charge her. And uh, I thought that they were going to allow her to because Hawaii is a long way from Florida. I thought they were going to allow her to, you know, get on her flight and come back in her own time or whatever but they snatched her uh right in hawaii i mean that's you know part of the country so-called so they snatched her right there and brought her all the way back on over here uh to south florida so right on get kicking with it and i would if i had young people and they were confused about racism or thinking hey man you know interracial dating is great you know friends are doing it and i think it's good hey let's look at this case and then remember they argued a lot apparently argued so much that they were going to get kicked out of the building where this young black male was killed at that sort of thing right there like hey now i mean really now does that sound like this was just wonderful romance no problems they got along harmonious fashion hmm hmm i would follow that case for sure if i had young people especially if we were in florida but regardless if i had young folks we would follow that case. A uh, listener did write in. Pull the wool over their eyes is in the word guide. I was going to play this back with uh, the white guest that we talked to, Curtis, Curtis Wilkie, uh, in his book where he used the term uh, woolly notions. Whites in Mississippi had woolly notions of white supremacy. And I said, what, what did you mean when you said woolly? And he struggled to explain it and all that. And I said, that's in the word guy. Uh, pull the wool over their eyes. Fuller says, do not use this term. When others use it, ask for a detailed explanation that you can easily understand. Reason. During the, during the existence of white supremacy racism, this term may be used mostly to help promote the thought that the hair of black people is like wool but should be disdained. The expression may apply to the act of deceiving people by making them blind to many worthy things and or may apply to making black people blind to their own self-worth by having them believe that their wool-like hair is somehow associated with a hindrance to sight or vision. Note, during the existence of racism, white supremacy, racist man and racist woman have often produced or promoted use thinking that the hair of black people is wool like and therefore ugly, non quality, 
useless, and not as socially acceptable as the hair of white persons. Wild and woolly is also in the word guide. Mr. Fuller suggests that people not use this term either. Woolly minded all of those. <laughs> Same in and, and the way he explained it, talking about uh, Curtis Wilkie, Mississippi, the way he explained, he said uh, he couldn't even exp- it took him a long time. Then he finally said vague. Even that's exactly what he's talking about. Those old woolly minded Negroes don't understand nothing. Ignorant about everything. Words are important and pull the wool over their eyes. Metaphor. What do I say all the time? Metaphors like this. Not only are they not precise, they don't really give detail about what we're talking about. They promote ideas, values of white supremacy, racism. Black people should be devalued. Black people should be mistreated. And the converses we heard fair. Oh, my God. That segment where they talk about being affirmed in your negritude and blackness and Africanness. They said in New England also 21st century that they in a court of law we're not out in the 7-eleven parking lot we're not in the in the hot dog aisle with the walmart we're in a court of law and they go to the potential juror and he says eh you know that's a biases this is what, what do you mean you, you you favor the prosecution what do you mean he says, eh, i'm not not a big fan of black people <laughs> like, what what he says eh, I've been around a few of them and I'm not impressed <laughs> dang <laughs> in a court of law like come on come on come on now you get to hang out on the jury I don't know well you know <sighs> I'm not impressed either amen brother come on we'll get through <laughs> you know we got Bill Cosby and I don't know <laughs> man that that's your affirmation in blackness because that's what the world thinks about black people but in New England and and even in that segment where they talked about that all of that Jim Crow and they said in the Jim Crow South back when they used to Mississippi deliberately rig juries so nobody gets convicted in the Emmett Till lynching castration they would rig the jury. I said, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. They did that everywhere. I thought Simi Valley, is that in the South? I thought, or maybe South, Southern California, maybe that counts. I don't know. I don't think people normally include California when they talk about the South. And that's 90, so that's not even, you know, old Jim Crow time even. Maybe I'm confused. They do a lot of the all white jury thing all over the place very very common let us see uh, number 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you have commentary uh, we'll give folks another 10 if they're spectating hanging out uh, black and proud perhaps that's fine too we'll give folks uh, as I said 10 and then uh, if there are no commentary to share we will call it one and we will be here on Monday normal time 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific you can show up Monday and find out the details 
Uh, I will make sure I get in as well. The piece about the Nazi art in New York. They said, man, how do you all go to track and, and find, you know, all of this stolen booty? And I said, well, there were extensive catalogs made at the end of World War II and white people run around Europe and other places and made catalogs what was stolen, boom, boom, boom. And then and the Nazis made extensive catalogs themselves. Everything that we've stolen, we've stolen so much, we got to put it here and cat it there and know what we've taken and all that so we can go and match and boom, boom, boom. Find it. Racist man, racist woman, that is a hallmark. You're not ignorant about racism, white supremacy. You're going out and studying, cataloging, bragging about keeping records and inventories of all of this stuff. Things that we've stolen. The business of white supremacy, racism, really. They do the same thing with niggers about, oh, they even included it there. And art stolen from Africa and all these other places. Long history that uh, what black Wall Street that they call it. Tulsa, Oklahoma, same thing. Do this all the time. Go in, loot, and get records of all the property that we've stolen, Rosewood or what have you, Negros that we've stolen, <laughs> slave records, all the time. They're not ignorant uh, about white supremacy racism, what it is, how it works. Also, they had that segment talking about uh, the Emmett Till alerts. Now, I think that's just in Maryland, unless I misheard the segment, but it, they said, like, if some sort of white supremacist incident happens, an alert goes out to all of the black leaders as Mr. Fuller said all of the leaders of black people are white in fact that's what I was thinking in the whole segment like who are they going to notify like I, let's just say me retired firefighter uh, Al Sharpton I don't even know uh, President Obama let's say that we all live in Maryland okay something happens uh, black person gets run off the road or whatever they call him a nigger in the process okay Bam. Emmett Till alert. Bing. President Obama. Al Sharpton. Boom, boom, boom. Now, I guess if it's President Obama, like, hey, they got lots of resources. So, bang, they could do a whole lot. Media attention. Boom, boom, boom. Get a whole lot of things coordinated. Maybe Al Sharpton, too. Maybe. But most of their resources they have because of white people. So, I mean, you can just cut through all that and go right to the white people. Once you get outside of, like, Al Sharpton and President, people who have white friends who could help them get some things done, man, who exactly are you going to contact that would be able to help you solve a problem? A black person reports racism, white supremacy. What are they going to do? I'm being victimized too. Like, can barely, you know, get through myself. What am I going to do? I, they'd have to show me the list of, you know, who, who are, is going to get, what black leaders are going to get this information and then what are they going to do? Because if they're going to get this information and uh, just do like a social media blast or whatever, so the people are informed, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Are they going to contact white people? You know, these are black people that I guess, as I said, have connections to certain white people who can get something done. If that's the case, great. But that's just, again, going back to what I said, the black, the leaders, all of the leaders of black people classified as white. That's who you're going to need to talk to to get something done if something happens. If I am in it, folks know somebody, wherever you happen to be at, Florida, wherever in the world, hey, this is a black leader and they don't need to contact any white people to get things done right now. They can solve problems. Well, let us know his name and he should be first person on the Emmett Till alert. I don't know such a person. I don't even think that'd be Al Sharpton, truthfully, because I think he needs white people to 
get things done unless I'm in error. No disrespect to Al Sharpton. Long live Al Sharpton. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Nab the other folks who dialed in with a hand. I guess I will take one second. I didn't see as many people. It seemed like a lot of folks didn't hear about the uh, Kobe Bryant situation. I don't. I don't know if people heard about the uh, Torrance text situation. I posted about this uh, as well this week. This I thought was stunning just because it was pretty graphic, but I didn't really hear as much about this. If people did hear about it, great. I'll just share it real quick, and then we'll hear from the other folks who dialed in. Uh, so this is racist texts show Torrance police discussed killing suspects. The day after Torrance police shot Christopher DeAndre Mitchell, black male privilege, in 2018, his mother and a dozen of his loved ones staged a protest outside the department's headquarters. At the same time, a group of officers, including two who had killed Mitchell, were discussing the situation via text message. Was going to tell you that all those nigger family members are all pissed off in front of the station, one wrote according to the documents recently reviewed by the Times. Court records show the officers later mused about what might happen once the identities of those who shot the 23-year-old became public. Gun cleaning party at my house when they release my name? One asked. Yes, absolutely. Let's all just post in your yard with lawn chairs in a firing squad. Another replied. Eight months ago, a Los Angeles Times investigation revealed portions of racist and homophobic text messages exchanged by at least a dozen Torrance police officers, a scandal that sparked an investigation by the California Attorney General's office. The state attorney general's office filed a subpoena in May for thousands of pages of Torrance police records, but officials have declined to provide updates on the state investigation, despite critics calls for a civilian board to oversee the police department. As Los Angeles has, there's little evidence that Torrance officials have taken tangible steps toward reform since the scandal exploded. They give uh, detail. Oh, let's see if we can get some of the exact ones. Let's see. So officers have been trying to suppress evidence of the text for a long time. Uh, let me see if we can get some of the exact details. Skipping down a few pages. Paragraph, excuse me. Uh, uh, very lengthy report they've been covering this for a long time uh, oh and they have lots of pictures too okay let's see okay have some more of the details jeez such <laughs> Although the Times identified most of the officers in the scandal last December, the newspaper was able to review only snippets of conversations. A week later, a Los Angeles County Superior Court, that's the same sheriff's office, uh, judge severely limited what prosecutors could share about the scandal. But the legal fight stemming from the criminal case against Tomzik and Weldon led prosecutors to enter a heavily redacted report on the text messages into a public court file earlier this year. Among previously unreported texts were gruesome promises of indiscriminate violence against black people. Didn't say black and brown, didn't say black and Latinos, black people. Don't you feel affirmed in your negritude? One officer shared pictures of tiny coffins intended to house the bodies of black children they would put down. Another described how he would brutally execute suspects. 
Luckily, I wasn't out and about, one officer wrote in response to a text about black men robbing someone in Torrance, according to the records. D.A. shoot team asking me why they are all hung by a noose and shot in the back of the head eight times each. I'm just looking at this paragraph. <laughs> Read it now because they have. Ah, man. It's, it just goes on like that. Long, 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 long report. But yeah, that's enough to stop there. But I thought this was important uh, as well. Torrance, California. They talk about California as though there's no racism, white supremacy there. Everybody gets along. And except for that little brush up with Rodney King and O.J. Simpson, everything has been fine. Let's see. Star 6-1. Folks have commentary. Uh, retired firefighter. Caller at the courthouse in Florida. Both should be with us. I, I have a brief report, but I'll let the, the, the other uh, caller speak first. Yes, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. I just had a few reports really quick. Um, the audio segment, I think that was the uh, Duval County white woman. Um, I think her name was Carolyn Lee. I, I do remember that story. I'm trying to remember. I think that there was some surveillance footage of that. Because they tried to make it seem like, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I think I'm, I like well, I remember them mentioning the height size. I think they said something like that. It's that the the minor was tall, the black female. Maybe they were trying to say that in comparison to the teacher, and they were trying to say, "Well, see, that would that would mean that she couldn't have struck her or couldn't have hit the student." But I was trying to remember if there was surveillance footage of it or not. Um, and I know it was, if it's that same case that she was talking about, this person shouldn't have been the teacher of the year because she was saying the word nigger or something. Um, and then I guess all of a sudden they're saying there's no evidence now. Um, but I have to look up more on that story. Uh and as far as the, I think that was a segment about New England um, up north where there was a white woman saying that how you have white people who don't like to uh, stay focused on the severity of white supremacy or like how they like to phrase it, the right wing extremist groups. Then, hey, you're, I guess they're trying to say they're complicit. Maybe she didn't use that word. And I, and it just goes to show, at least in my opinion, how even the white people who don't consider themselves a part of those groups that have a more direct uh, sense of expressing white supremacy and then the people that aren't in those groups, if they don't do anything about it, then they're pretty much uh, agreeable racism. And it, it does show that white people 
are the experts on that. Um, and one last thing I wanted to mention is that they had the voting going on this week. Uh, just, I don't know if you heard of this person, but there's a white woman because I know like how they like to constantly say the white man and white men involved in January the 6th, but it's a white woman down here that won so like so much of the vote. It says she won 85% um, in the congressional district three. Her name is Kat Kamek and she's another one of the white women that had these gun rifles, had a rifle on the ad, uh, like a Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's in Georgia though, but yeah, she had the ad. She's talking about the gun rights and talking about, and she does the name calling, mentioned bird brains, liberals are bird brains, chickens and stuff like that. They're tacky, but a lot of white people apparently, um, and perhaps some non-white people went to support this candidate. But yeah, that that was the I think in my in my area the biggest win, eighty five percent of the vote. Um and that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. They said women lead the charge. Old Cat Kemet, Republican incumbent, pulling it in District 3 and Daniel Hawk and shit, white women. Sounds like the, I don't know, maybe she's got some connections to Ben Tillman, some of the other uh, legends in that, uh, that ilk. Go out and do the same thing. White woman, help them uh, hold down the uh, global system. White supremacy, racism, still Ron DeSantis in 2024, but yes, we will keep an eye on the local elections as well. And those gun-toting white women like man same thing we said before I don't think Andrew Gillum I don't think we would have had a different governor situation if he came out and had his long barrel and sunshine state voters Gillum I don't think so Um, oh and the they did not have surveillance footage uh, for the I guess teacher of the year situation it was in Duval County with uh, Lee what is her forgot her first name Carolyn Lee yeah that's it but they did not they said they didn't have witnesses or video uh, of the event allegedly so which is well I guess I don't know I don't know where I have to see where it happened again but yeah they said they didn't have video so no charges this white woman certainly could not have been practicing racism what teacher of the year what do you mean Uh, let's see. Uh, retired firefighter, you said you had other commentary you wanted to get in. Yes, I I, I uh, was making up my mind on whether or not I was going to report this. Uh, but I, I am because it 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 would it reminds me of of the importance of Dr. Francis Cress Wilson uh, and. I would, I, oh, if she would be able to see what I was looking at while I was listening to you uh, uh, about 20, 30 minutes ago, uh, it would be worthy of her time and energy to listen to what she has to say. Uh, 
the on on the television uh with the sound you know turned completely off i'm looking at these images uh black male quote unquote prize fighter by the name of Gerard Anderson uh you know, it has, it has all of these writings, you know, up there, so I don't need the sound. Uh, uh, it's reported that he calls himself Big Baby. Uh, you know, if, if anybody ever watched anything about professional prize fighting, uh, they make a big deal now out of the entrance that the fighters have into the ring. You know, sometimes they have a, a uh, a recording a person singing or rapping or whatever, uh, the costume that they're wearing. Well, anyway, Mr. Anderson literally came down the aisle in a powder blue jumpsuit that is familiar with non-white black males in prison, literally, with a chain with the with the chain, the frontal chain. I forgot. I don't know what the technical name for it, but with the handcuffs in the front, the chain that goes around your around your waist down to your ankles. I'm not making this up. Uh, literally, this was his costume, if you will, of coming into the ring uh, and at his feet that actually looked like it was sewed into his boxing boots were the matching sandal wear that males and females in greater confinement normally are dressed in that he got into the ring. The handlers, which means the other people that assisted this fighter, had on the back of their shirts Richland Correctional Institute. And I, 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 you, 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 you ask us not to be verbal, you know, uh, on, on the, on the, on the program because it would interfere, if it interferes with the, uh, the program itself, you know, but I was like wowing, you know, with, you know, wowing and everything else looking at this. Looking at this as 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 uh, I'm listening to the cows, I mean I've never seen anything like this in my life, you know. As far as uh, with with boxing is concerned, uh, it, although I don't even identify boxing as a sport, to tell you the truth. Uh, but anyway, that that's basically what I had to report. It's something that actually took place about 30 minutes ago. That's it. Thank you. That would be. Further illustration, reading more important than watching television all day, every day. White supremacy, racism, content all of the time. And that's what, hey, now another moment, Negro affirmation. Hey, affirming my blackness. Yes. Black male privilege. Yes. Shackled black male inmates all the time probably just came right out of prison go to the fight and then they put him back in the shackles and take him right back to his cage blackmail might rate somebody on the way to the ring we don't know have to make sure everyone is safe so we'll keep him shackled that's that's your blackmail almost 2025 black that's what they said 
They said it was boxers. Floyd Mayweather. That's what they said. Black male privilege. There you go. Almost 2025. But that's, uh, you know, and even with that, you have no idea. Like, they could have come because a lot of those uh, goofy fights and things take place in uh, Vegas. And, hey, you're talking about boxing. So this is somebody with brain damage just going by the evidence. So might not be thinking correctly. And then you get some race soldier. Hey, this will be great. We already going to be on television. Hey, how about you come in? And, oh, yeah, be like savage. It'll be great. And, oh, we get so many ratings. Give them a little bit of money, whatever. Very easy to manipulate non-white people, victims of racism. And again, brain damage. But yeah, no surprise. Reading more important than watching television. Uh, we should be here on Monday again. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. You'll find out details uh, on Monday. Show up. We will be ready to roll, hopefully. Uh, and we might even have other programs later on in the week. Not done with Buffalo at all. At all. Um, I was, man, normally I expect people when they contact me because it's generally not, oh my goodness, black brother and great helpful and blah 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 not that I'm you know looking or interested in any of that that's not the point it is replace white supremacy with justice but it's normally not always but generally in the direction of coon and no count get it together and that sort of thing you don't know what you're talking about blah 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 uh, and so somebody uh, contacted me or I had several folks but this one in particular contacted me once we finished with Absolute Madness and Joey 22 and all of that. And they contacted me and I was expecting something in the same vein uh, that, you know, they were coming to grouse and complain. Uh, and they said that they had connections to the Buffalo Criterion newspaper in Buffalo. And I've been talking about the coverage that they and the Buffalo Challenger, uh, that their coverage of the 22 caliber killings throughout how it was outstanding and deliberately excluded from Catherine Pellinero's work uh, and they said man connections my so-called family it's part of the folks who uh, started the Buffalo Criterion and man to be learning about all this is so important it's like oh okay right on that's important glad to hear it glad to hear it but yes uh, everybody should know about uh, Joey 22 as we move forward especially with the trial coming up uh, in Buffalo, their kicker just got in trouble. He just got drafted, and they got some sort of charges about rape. Like, whoo, attention on Buffalo. Like, I went to the L.A. Times and all of the major stories because the kicker that they just drafted in Buffalo, I think he might be classified as white. You have to go and look to see if you think he's a white person or a non-white person. You can email me, untiljustice at gmail.com if you have a view. But that is picture plastered on the front page because he went to college in California. I was like, oh, my God, rape charges. And this is, I think it was a gang rape, like really, you know, egregious allegations. Like if this is true, like, oh, my gosh. Uh, and I think he just got drafted rookie, just first round pick. Well, I don't know. Take that back. I don't know if he's first round pick, but just got drafted and all of this. And this just happened like, wow. And they had two big stories. L.A. Times all the way across the country still talking about Buffalo. More to come uh, on Buffalo for sure. And if we have any listeners, if you have uh, a free moment or and or expertise, we have any folks uh, you've done 
I don't know, travel agency and planning that sort of thing, what to do in Buffalo. I've been looking, I told you, looks like I might have my, my plane ticket taken care of and get my board looked up, Just trying to figure out the best time to go. At least right now, it looks like the second week in October, mid to uh, early, mid-October. Uh, Gendron's next court appearance is October 6th. So that looks like the best time to kind of go. I can go to the trial if they have the public there, which they did last time. So if that's still the case, I'll see if I can go to the trial report. That would be great, right? I could go and tell you what I saw. If I get to see him in person and all that, yell out and call him a cracker. I don't know. Uh, And then go do research. See if I can get as much uh, local material on the Gendron case, the uh, Joey 22 case. Uh, Go to the tops. Man. I almost cried. I looked on the map. I was trying to figure out like the best place to stay so I can get to the courthouse, get to the college to research, right? All that figure out, go to the east side, see the tops and all that, man. I call myself like I've been spoiled. I've been in Seattle all these years. Hmm. Easy enough. You want to find a spot where they've got grocery stores close by and easy to get to. Boom, boom, boom. Man, I'm looking and I see the tops, right? Massacre, all that. I don't want to shop there. Lots of reasons. Uh, I'm looking and it's like, okay, (laughs) today not have groceries. And it looks like tops. Like I still have not. They said there was a whole foods five miles from tops. I have not found that whole foods. Now, I guess I could map it and all that, but I mean, it took me, I think about 10 to 15 minutes of, Oh wait, that's what they've been complaining about the whole time that we've been talking about this, that they don't have grocery stores here. Like, oh, that's what that is. Like, oh, and then it's sunk in like, ooh, you would have to live here. And that would be your low quality existence, Gus T, for the two weeks that I'm going to be here that I have to go to the shop, uh, tops and hang out. Hope uh, Gendron and his ilk do not come back and get their ridiculous produce and what have you for that. Like, man, oh, I don't even have, I did not feel affirmed at all. Buffalo is the lamest in the world. So if anybody has free time, you can find cool things that are happening. Something that would be better than being there for October 6th, Mr. Gendron's next appearance and or <clears throat> better grocery store than Tops, let Gus know. It looks awful and or things to do that are constructive. I think we had a listener who went to Buffalo not too long. We had several actually. They were going to have Isabel Wilkerson come and do a talk on Cased in Buffalo. <sighs> Victims guaranteed qualified, but that is not a book I would pick to explain anything about the shooting this May or before in Buffalo. Anywho, any other folks comment they need to get in before we conclude? Yes, uh, I was just thinking about uh, uh, if you uh, happen to go to Buffalo and to the the uh grocery store that uh where the uh tragedy uh took place at and you would happen to meet the black male who had the long discussion 
with the killer. Uh, uh, reportedly, he hangs out at the grocery store. That that's how he was able to meet uh, the white uh, killer in the first place. So I just figured he may be still hanging out in the same area. You know, that would be, you know, something to uh, think about. I had already considered that, sir. Um, as much you're talking, Grady Lewis is his uh, name. Grady Lewis, black male, who he said okay. he had like a okay. two-hour conversation with uh, Mr. Jenrin the day before the shooting, and I think uh, Jenrin allegedly asked him, "Are you going to be here tomorrow?" And he said yes, and he I, he was there the next day. He just came after the shooting, so he shows him like, "What in the world?" and blah blah, blah and all this, but. I have mentioned him so many times. What does it mean to be white? Who's more informed about racism? I've mentioned him so many times. I played the uh, the interview that he did after the shooting and talking about it. He gave him his keys. That's the, the black male. The city gave him his keys, gave him his benefit card for him to go in and get a uh, food or, you know, whatever he was going to do, get his nourishment before he went and killed all these black people. Catherine Massey, who wrote for the Buffalo Criterion and the Buffalo Challenger. Uh, but I thought of that exactly like, yes, absolutely. I would love it if uh, some of the victims, family members, what have you, or folks that just uh, are in the area at Mr. Lewis to be able to chat with him and, and see what his thoughts are. That would be grand. Hopefully we will be able to make it happen, be able to get there and get back safely and uh, maybe not even have to eat at the Topps grocery store. Now, maybe that should be a part of it. To go and, you know, hey, because I've been in C, I think, the, except for the yoga retreats, and I had a lot of control over, you know, the groceries and what have you when we were in Virginia and D.C. and Florida, um, except for though, and I guess when I went to the White Privilege Conference in Wisconsin, and at that time I was not eating quality food, so, you know, it didn't matter. Uh, but since I've been eating well, I've had a lot of control over, you know, food and blah, blah, blah. I haven't had to be anywhere where... They don't have ample amounts of farmers markets and fresh organic produce and all the rest of it. So I don't know. Maybe Gus should experience that to see this is what the victims of white Rick James and company. This is what their experience is so that you can really appreciate Seattle and having healthy organic fiddles. I, I wouldn't be surprised, Gus, in the advent of the tragedy that took place based on my experiences on how white people practice racism, white supremacy in, in a refined way that they actually worked on improving the type of foods. I'm not saying that it's going to be, you know, vegan A+, plus, but some sort of uh, uh, effort of improvement you probably would find in that in that particular version of what that grocery that grocery store used to be. That makes sense. It might be. Uh, I would have to talk to some of the folks there to kind of see if they think there's been a change in the quality of produce and items uh, that they offer at the store and what have you. But I think they did say they made some cosmetic changes and put in more security and 
fresh coat of paint, that sort of thing. Refinements. I think they said they did some some minor uh, upgrades or what have you to the fa- to the facility. But yeah, if I can go, I will make sure uh, to ask uh, and see what the folks think about all of this uh, once we touch. Especially if I have to end up shopping there, like man grouse and come in for sure we will not be there any longer than two weeks and then it would be gus smuggling food on the way there to try to offset that as best we can but anywho uh we will do it again monday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific uh there you go much obliged folks tuned in live or archive hopefully it was worthy of your time and energy sobriety would be best there are lots of serial killers out and about we need high functioning brain computers to make great decisions in addition to being sober if you're in a vehicle you're sober buckled not on your mobile device uh, we need to be paying attention so that we can minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no and be alert about what is happening around you that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no reckless production of offspring cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother a victim I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.